think about a lot of those things and, and factor in all those different things. That is, there's like a spider that's right here over the table. Oh, oh. right. <laughs> Sorry, it just was like, it was right in my side. I'm like, that is annoying. And now I see, I see it right there. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Sorry. It was just annoying. I'm like, I'm like watching it come down as I'm trying to, I'm like, I, uh. <laughs> <laughs> Squirrel. <laughs> and Kevin is easily distracted. What? Exactly. Welcome to Preferred Enemies, the Undergrowth Network, Warhammer 40k podcast. I'm your host, Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And there's a pause because Richard is not here due to some family stuff. Uh, he will be back hopefully next episode, but uh, we will carry on without him. And this week, we're episode 178. Uh, we're not going to do a Codex review this week. We've done three of them in a row. So sorry, Dark Angels and Necron players. We we will get to you in time, but uh, today is not that day. We will mar- mention Dark Angels. We will mention yep. Dark Angels. Uh, but uh, we are just going to kind of take a look at the state of the game. We've all, uh, we've all played in uh, some GTs recently. Uh, we've watched some uh, GTs go down. We've you know had some stuff come up since. We're then. list building for future GTs that are yes. coming up. Yeah, I mean, so you know and we're we're far enough away from chapter approved and the big FAQ. We're kind of like, in the middle, settled down a little bit. Yeah, so it's it's kind of time to to huddle back up and look at where where we feel the game is and uh, where we might like to see it go. Things that we're hoping to see, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but first, as always, news and new releases and your listener mail and news and new releases is, we talked about it last episode, Kill Team's out now, the first expansions are already out, the next expansions are already up for pre-order, and uh, we talked with Steven, our local uh, Games Workshop store owner at uh, Games Workshop Blue, Cro- uh, Blue Ridge Crossing here in Kansas City, and... He basically informed us that, and I've seen it confirmed by a couple other places, that uh, Games Workshop does not see Kill Team as kind of a quarterly update game the way that like Necromunda is or Blood mm-hmm. Bowl is. They see this as core 40K, just a different format for it. Interesting. So they are planning on having Kill Team releases in the regular schedule along with like Age of Sigmar and, and uh, like main, you know, 40K Prime stuff. Well, it's interesting because that does allow you to potentially update squads, update units, add new units to 40k through through the lens of Kill Team to update that, as well as releasing new terrain like we saw and doing some of these other releases that kind of pull dual purpose for both 40k and Kill Team. So that's that's an interesting uh that's an interesting concept like way they're doing it. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad to see that Kill Team has apparently caught on very quickly. People were very eager for a skirmish level version of this. Yes. And most reviews seem to be very positive. People are enjoying it. They're enjoying the smaller scale. They're enjoying the quicker play. Uh, they're digging the new terrain. Although I've already seen a few people complain that this terrain, because it, the wall, and, and I think it's a fair complaint, the walls are made of a lot of them have like just large slit windows. That it still doesn't exactly block line of sight for big things. It does for small ones. But unless you have rules such as ITC's rule of first floor 
blocks line of sight, right. uh, then it still doesn't quite provide that. You know, it, it works very well for Kill Team because Kill Team has the rule of something is visually obscured. It's the minus one to hit. It doesn't have to be a full line of sight blocker, which is something I wouldn't mind seeing brought over to 40K to kind of make terrain matter again without mm-hmm. having to be fully line of sight blocking. And I think, and I, I've seen, again, it's something I've seen a couple of people float the idea of, and I definitely think that it's possibility is that Kill Team could be kind of a lab for figuring out changes they want to make to overall 40K, such as the long range issue, or you know, like the long range penalty to hit, the change to cover, things like that. I would not be surprised if we see some of those eventually worked in either in chapter approved you know because with chapter approved it'd be really easy to suddenly update all the ruins or all the rules for terrain because that's Mm -hmm. kind of an ancillary add-on to the core rules anyway in the big rule book so you could suddenly in fact they did something similar to that for age of sigmar in their general's handbook they redid like all the terrain piece rules in like one chapter of the book so um that's definitely something we could see coming down the pipe so i'm hoping that that's one of the things they do with Kill Team. Yeah, I think so too. Because I, I think there's some really interesting mechanics in Kill Team that that work better for obviously for a skirmish game. I like the idea of kind of the the alternating activation kind of thing where I move and then you move and then I shoot, you shoot. I think that that works better for a skirmish game. But I think that solves potentially solves some of the problems that we've been talking about with Alpha Strike going first in 40k. I don't know that they'll go that far, but right. but it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see what they pull from Kill Team that's successful and what they try to port over. And I, I guess I agree with all your guys' points we've said so far. So the extra thing I'll throw in is I also still like Kill Team as a point of entry. Oh, yes, absolutely. Because the, the price point is probably just right to get somebody in the door. And it's it's a good game. Just on top of that, it's not just like Armageddon or the others where here's a big thing, play it for a little bit, and then we're not supporting it. With them saying it's going to be continually supported, you yes. can, like, if you enjoy it, you might upgrade. Or after you get, like, a few Kill Team squads, you might decide you want to put them together and actually do a 40K game. So it, it this really feels like the door that's opening up to right. new people. And I think also the fact that at launch, rather than doing what they've kind of done in the past with some products, and I think they broke, they broke away from doing this with uh, the most recent Age of Sigmar release. But, like, remember when 40K first, like, eighth first launched they had the dark imperium box set and then i think like a week later you could buy the rule book separately or was the rule book mm. available the same day uh, or no the rule book and the indexes were available the same day weren't they yes i believe so i believe they were all available right at, at, at launch. launch but that's yeah. because it was a big suddenly like this yeah. edition changes everything this was a big like full paradigm shift yeah, to, yeah. But uh, they've started kind of moving away from the idea that the core book, the core book is only available because, like Shadow War Armageddon, that was an issue where, oh, you want to play Shadow War Armageddon? Well, you have to buy the large box set. We're not, and then like a month later, you can buy the rule book, and yeah. we've added a couple extra chap, you know, you know, a couple extra factions to it. With Kill Team, you've got the hundred and thirty dollar box set, which gives you enough for two people to play right out of the box, board terrain. Armies, rule book, tokens, the whole nine. Uh, if you already have an army, you can, if you already have units, you can just buy the core, like the $40 core rule book and go. If you want a, let's say you've already got units, but you don't, 
have the board and you don't have the terrain, you can buy, like, they've got the Sector Mechanicum, uh, Kill Zone, which is like 80 bucks, gives you another, another mat to play on, and, or board in this case, they're still fold out boards, uh, another fold out board and terrain for it and rules for using that terrain in Kill Team. So you could buy the core book and that for like $120 total and still have everything you need to play. Uh, and then they've got the expansion teams, like the, uh, like expansion kill team squads yeah. where it's like five models and some terrain and the rules and cards and faction rules for them all for like 60 bucks. Yeah. Six, like 62, I think is what it was. Yeah. No, those are good price points. Cause again, we've, as we've talked about before, price point is basically a video game. Like if a new video game comes out, that's $60. If, as long as the game has entry points that stay around that price point, the game can continue to gain new people. Right. And I'm also, I'm also impressed, like, the squads come with extra pieces of terrain. So you pick up, like, if you and your bud each pick up one of those, now you have, like, some extra terrain to put on the table and fill out your kill team board a little bit more. Or, you know, it's like, you just mark out, okay, this is the area we're playing on, and you brought your terrain, I brought my terrain, we'll throw, like, one or two other things on there, boom, we're done, we can play. So yeah, the, the price point is right. The multiple paths of entry is good. The ongoing support is fantastic, you know, is a fantastic plan for this and way better than like, like you said, Dennis, Shadow War Armageddon was just kind of here and then gone. Yeah. Uh, Necromunda is better, but it's, and, and we've got Game War 4 coming out. They announced, uh, with, and, uh, the Cador, House Cador is coming out. So but then again, those are also different models. Well, this is the same. 40K this is core model. 40k. Yes. Yeah. But you know, it's, it, again, it's, or, and even the last kill team, which was kind of a one and done, which that made me really sad because that was another perfect point of entry mm-hmm. product. Cause it had a, it had a, the core rule book included. It had two squads and all the rules you needed for doing kill team. The only thing it didn't include was the terrain. So, uh, but we've got a system now that support actively supports. Matched play, open play, narrative play, campaign play, all out of the box. And they're, I mean, they just posted a, you know, did their Facebook post of if you have any rules, questions, or concerns, here's where you can send them so they can start putting together FAQs for that as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited in what they're doing with Kill Team. And uh, I hope they continue to uh, keep, I mean, I hope they continue with their plan of supporting it and making it a full, full-fledged product i'm curious to see what they're going to do since they are planning on running an organized play structure for it as well so yeah no it'll be interesting to see again how they port that over as well because is if that works well is that the beginning of gw maybe taking more of an active role in the tournament scene for larger uh, 40k or something? i don't see that and I, I think rob and i kind of were talking about this when we were at show me what is this is the perfect point for gw to get in the door mm. and do it because this is the ground floor yeah if they tried to come in and start saying, hey, we want to run the tournament scene again, you've got a lot of people established who have been running it for years that then yeah. you're going to kind of displace. No, there would be a lot of pushback, but it just it makes me wonder if that's if that's at least they have an eye towards that. Like, hey, if this goes really well and we have, you know, then because, again, like maybe not running it, but maybe, you know, standardizing more of the events and, and having more influence, maybe not running the events, but just having more input in the competitive scene, because I guarantee GW probably, you know, they, they look at the competitive scene and they see all the same issues we see. And it doesn't reflect well on their game at times. You know, if there's these complicated rules issues that are causing, you know, 
consternation over who's winning events and stuff like that. Like that doesn't reflect well on them as a company either. Right. So I, I, I would, I don't think I would ever see them like replacing like ITC with just the GW tournament circuit, but I could definitely see them taking a much more active role in it. Or at least, you know, and, and we've seen them like going to the large events, you know, being present because obviously they were present at Adepticon, sure, sure. they were present at Las Vegas Open, they're going to have a noted, pre- you know, mark presence at Nova Open. So they're, they're hitting the big events sure. in, in North America. They were at, obviously they're at the London GT. So they're, they're making their presence known. They are watching. They're, co- they're collecting the data. That's why we had the big FAQ pushed back. That's why we had, uh, the rule of three come down the mm-hmm. pipe and, and the Battle Brothers rules and, and, you know, the other beta rules are all coming out of that. So obviously they are taking, uh, they are taking notice. And I, I would hazard to say, and I, I imagine I am speaking, <laughs> I'm putting words in the mouth of a lot of people. So uh, I'm, you know, so I, I'm kind of hesitant to say this a little bit, but I would not be surprised if a lot of the major tournament organizers wouldn't mind a little bit more standardization from absolutely for not necessarily wanting Games Workshop to come in and take over, but maybe you know work with them and come up with like here are some standard like coming up with tournament mission packets that you know obviously the ITCs poured a lot of work in it. Our friends at Renegade, got, uh, the guys at Adepticon, the guys at Nova Open, they've all put effort into building tournament packets and and rule mission types i wouldn't i bet they wouldn't be too put out if gw kind of looked at that and said okay hey we kind of taken what you're what you're suggesting how about we do we put together another alternate set of missions that we put in the next chapter approved mm-hmm. that have more progressive scoring or more player choice and less end game checking I sort of agree with you, but I don't know that it's the big events that want that. Like, LVO and Nova and Adepticon are going to continue to do their thing because they're big enough and they've, they're they the can marquee do events. I'm thinking, selfishly, I'm thinking about middle-tier events like ours. Well, I would love to have more input from GW on some of this stuff. Like, that would make our jobs a lot easier if there was a more standard way to build lists for ter- for GT tournaments or you know, a standard GT FAQ or something, more of that input. So like that. So I think, I think the large events like the London GT and those like that are, are going to continue to do their own thing. And I like that those exist going to Nova, going to Adepticon, going to Renegade, going to LVO, completely different experiences. And that's great. And those should be different experiences where they can kind of step in at least Easier is kind of going into those lower and mid tier tournaments and standardizing those, or even GTs. just like at the RTT level, yeah, and and really have some input to clean up a lot of the the stuff that's going on with this game and kind of standardizing it more. So yeah, well we'll see. I, I don't know. I have no insight as to what they're going oh, to do. No, with this. Yeah, no, no, nor, nor do it, we. Yeah, nor it do just I. Just so. kind of feels like this may be a way they're that they're doing some of this with an eye towards taking a more active role in some of those things. Yeah. And again, you know, this is, as Dennis said, getting in on the ground floor. So they can, sure. they can decide what this looks like, how far they want to support it. Obviously, they've, they were able to do that with Shadespire. They've kind of got that under their belt now. Mm-hmm. And so they can keep this. And I imagine this is going to be just as living a rule set as eighth edition has shown to be. I would hope Al- so. Although I'm curious, uh, again, and maybe this is getting ahead of ourselves and maybe I should save the, I'm going to save this for, for later. Okay. For, for later. So we'll move on. 
Um, other than that, uh, I think most of the other news has been event-based, which we will talk about in the second half of the show. Yep. Uh, so uh, we still don't have any word on uh, Space Wolves and Orcs other than their expansions for Kill Team Around. Yeah, so. there's been some rumors that have pointed to the end of August for Space Wolves. I don't know it, how credible that is. It feels like we're probably nearing the end of the... Uh, the new Sigmar release cycle. Yeah. So I would hope that, uh, you know, as you mentioned, another c- couple weeks of expansions for Kill Team, and then you're right, hopefully back into the 40K new new codex, new models. Right. Like that. So, yeah, because uh, obviously, you know, the Age of Sigmar release, yeah, we're getting the last bits of the Night Haunt line put out, the the last plastic kits or like multi part kits and, and last few easy builds for. The new uh, Sacrosanct Chamber Stormcast Eternals, which are pretty slick models. We'll talk more about that in Hobby Progress. Mm. But uh, yeah, so that, yeah, that should be, we should be on the tail end of that now. And then. So when is the Nova Open? Nova Open is September, like the first weekend of September. Okay. So it's like it's September the end 1st, of August, September. Yeah. So I imagine we'll also probably get a release dump at Nova as well of. Here's the next. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, here's the next things that we're working. Oh on. yeah. You know that like the first night or like the yeah. night leading into Nova, they're going to do the same kind of press junket that they did for LVO and Adepticon. So yeah. they better. Because, I, hope, I yeah. mean, no, Nova yeah. is is Nova's th- as big. Yeah. So, yeah. So, but yeah. so that's exciting that we'll we'll get to hopefully see some of those previews or at least uh, you know time frame on some some other stuff that's coming out. Yeah. So. So with that, we'll just go ahead and uh, transition directly to your listener mail. And as always, these letters are written by you, the listener. And if you have a letter you want to write us or a list you want to want us to review or just something you want to mention on the air, we'll tell you how to do it at the end of the segment. Uh, so our first one is from Paul Hunt. Paul writes, Hi, preferred enemies. First, let me say how much I love your show. Well, thank you, Paul. Uh, you are the best for in-depth codex reviews, rules, questions, and a casually competitive look at the hobby. Great job, guys. I'm always hesitant to accept the title of best because there are people who focus on those aspects more than we do. So look, this is the best 40k podcast that I listen to. We don't. You, I if you're like me, you I don't listen to. I actively don't listen to other podcasts because I don't want stuff to bleed over. Yeah. So I am confident to say that we are the best podcast that I listen to. Well. Thank you, Kevin. Oh, and by the way, if you haven't noticed, Kevin is here in studio rather than me coming in. Yeah, there's no Skype. lag this time. It's weird. Yeah. <laughs> he actually sounds loud and clear. Uh, so, yeah, we had to trade a Richard to uh, to get a Kevin. Again, it's like it, the four of us can't be in the same spot at the same time. It yeah, would disrupt the, the, the universe continue. just strains too much when we're all here together. Well, I think that that goes because isn't this year Renegade Richard going to make it and me not? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yep. So it holds true. Uh, anyway, continue with Paul's letter. I'm emailing you to ask if you would mention our first event. Me and two of my old school friends, players since the early 90s of second edition when Terminators had a three up save on 2D6. I remember those. Are going to start running tournaments in the southeast of England. And we would love a mention on your excellent podcast. Well, you shall have it, Paul. Our first event is f- 1st September, which that's how you know this is an English letter. Oh, yeah. 1st September. Our first event is 1st September at the Battle Memorial Hall, Battle East Sussex. 
which I love the fact that it sounds like it's some big 40k thing, but that's just the name of the town. That's it's so Battle. Great. <laughs> the Battle Memorial Hall, Battle East Sussex. It's a one-day 1750-point event. We're hoping to run more events in the future. If you would give us a push to help us get our first event off the ground, it would be great. For more details, we are at metaevents.co.uk or Meta Events GT on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks in advance, and thanks for the consistent... It did. See, that's consistently, and I'm already screwing it up. So thanks in advance, and thanks for the consistently excellent podcast. I am not editing that out because it just fits too well. I was going to say, that's like why we edit the podcast. Yeah. yeah, No, no, I'm leaving that (laughs) one in. I was thinking that, Kev. Yeah. (laughs) Paul Hunt, Meta Events. So yes, Paul, we'll absolutely put a link to this in the show notes. We'll post on the uh, Facebook page. So yes, uh, if you are going to be uh, in uh, England, near near East Sussex in the September 1st, 1st September, however you want to put it. Uh, yeah, go check out that event. And uh, yeah, we'll have no- links to that in the show notes. Uh, next up is a letter from Cordell Trusty. Cordell writes, Good evening. First, I would like to thank the four of you for a great podcast to listen to. Keep up the great work. I have three questions for you, sort of. Uh, on the, your most recent episode, number 177, you guys mentioned databases for keeping track of your hobby. I have enclosed something that I made. You guys are more than welcome to use and share. What do you think? Suggestions? Uh, and actually, uh, he posted, it's, it's a large spreadsheet, multiple page, like multiple sheet sections for like each faction, like, or like each, I guess, index, like, so yeah. like, so like Xenos, I th- but I think he's even got like there's one for Eldari, one for like Tau, one for Necrons, and then like a couple for Imperium, a couple for Chaos, and then there it's like listed every single unit and how many he has, how many he wants to get. There's a whole like whether something is available or not, whether some you know it's 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 a lot of work to put into a spreadsheet like that. Uh, but um, one thing I want to I want to put out here about these tools like Kanban Flow and uh, lean kit uh they are only as good as the effort you put into yes. using them so if you find that you would they don't serve your purpose and you would rather build something yourself to use that's a totally valid yeah, option absolutely. and with tools like google like google sheets and things mm-hmm. like that they're still they can still be mobily accessible because i know that's when you know you can still edit it on the go or do it at home so yeah, so if if you want to put something together that works as both a paint tracker and an inventory, this would totally be a way to go. I don't think I want to do that. Yeah, I don't. But, I don't think I want to know that much. Hey, <laughs> like, well, no, like, you don't want it. The thing is, you wouldn't be able to keep it accurate because you would just keep finding stuff. Yeah, I don't want to. Yeah, no, that that yeah, I'm like no, that makes me squeamish. <laughs> but that's because I have a problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so so okay. So fun fact. I was in my local, uh, our local friendly, our friendly local game store today picking up, uh, one of the kill team, the sector, uh, Mechanicus, uh, kill zone expansion. Mm-hmm. And I was having discussion with, and brought up the fact that there's a, I think there's a new Warhammer fantasy card game coming yes. out soon. Yeah. And we, we got talking about what is the intersection between tabletop war gamers and, uh, collectible card gamers and i said well neither group has any money other than that there's not a lot of overlap and they said oh and by the way give me six packs of the final fantasy three or the final fantasy uh card game opus three and it's like well there's the intersection right there and like well i have a problem well yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah so uh yeah but uh <laughs> but no but but no that does sound really great that does sound like a good tool um yeah i mean and, and you're you're exactly right the tools are only going to work as well as as well as you make them work. So if your process is using, you know, 
Kanban flow or something like that, or using those, using that type of methodology or using a spreadsheet or using a whiteboard. If that's what you're, that's what works for you. So yeah. find a system that works for you and, and, and the, get but, organized. Don't be like me and just have stuff everywhere. And just, <laughs> but also use it. Can, you know, if you're going to yeah. use it, use it consistently, put the effort into doing it because other, you can have all the organizational tools out there. And if you never use them, then they are of no value. Yes. Uh, so going on with Cordell's letter. Uh, the second question it, that I have for you is all about the fluff. I'm an 8th edition noob, and I'm pretty sure that I'm a 40k addict that drank the Kool-Aid. I've read a couple of the books, but I would like to hear what stories in the Black Library are your favorites. I really enjoy when you guys include the fluff in your codex reviews. And then his third question, you guys have been with the game for quite some time. Where do you think the future of the 40k fluff will go? Primark? Schism? New Faction? Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> Thank you again, Cordell <laughs> Trusty. Uh, okay, so as far as my favorite 40k uh, writing, now I have not read nearly as much Black Library stuff as I should. Yes, uh, fortunately, uh, our local library, the local libraries here in Kansas City, are starting to carry Black Library books. Nice. I've found a few. Unfortunately, I've been so busy painting stuff for like Show Me Showdown and stuff. Like I'll check out a couple and then like bare like halfway finish one of them. Uh, but going back, I would say the my favorite ones that I have read uh, would. Uh, and they all happen to be by Aaron Dembski Bowden. Okay. Uh, now, like, there's some really, really good ones. Uh, Eisenhorn Trilogy is fantastic. Yes. Um, James Swallow's Two Sisters of Battle book, uh, Fire and Fury, and, uh, oh god, I can't, er, I, Faith and Fury, Faith and, ah, I've lo- lost the names of them, but, uh, they're, they're really good. Um, the, the horse heresy stuff can be a little hit and miss at times. Yeah. I think the early books, though, are really solid. Yeah. Uh, and well, the interesting thing about the horse heresy books is if there's a specific legion that you're interested in, the books for those legions tend to be pretty good. Like if you're a fan of this legion, I've heard some mixed, legion. I've heard a little bit of mix on the two Dark Angels books. Sure. But. Well, but I think I think part of it though is that I think if you're a Dark Angels fan, I think you re- I think a lot of people really like those books. I think people that are like maybe not huge fans didn't enjoy them as much. Mm-hmm. So I think part of that with because the the horse heresy is how many books into it is it's like fifty oh, books or something oh they're now. it's huge. so it's it's one of those where I they're not quite to Terra yet That's I don't the sad know part. that I would <laughs> recommend like starting from the beginning of the horse heresy and reading them all I would say pick the legions that you find interesting and read those stories right and you can still kind of get the overall art you know meta narrative yeah. Going on. But as far as like the my favorite absolute favorite books, it would be a tie between um of the Space Marine Battles line, Hell's Reach, which is a basically the Battle of Hellreach Hive with the Black Templars and mm-hmm. Chaplain uh, Chaplain Grimaldus. That one is an excellent excellent read, and the other one again by Aaron Dembski Bowden is the uh the Night Lords trilogy. Those. Yeah. And one of the reasons I love the Night Lords trilogy is it does something that I love when uh when good writers do this uh, is to humanize villains without letting you forget that they're villains i mean the night lords like in the night lords in this story are your protagonists these mm-hmm. are the characters that you're following and you're kind of rooting for but at the same time they do horrible shit oh no i i as I mentioned earlier in the Facebook feed uh, chat, I just got done watching Infinity War for like the upteenth time. Yeah. And that's my favorite aspect of it is that they humanize the villain, even though he's still the villain. Yeah. Thanos um. still does terrible <laughs> things, but they make an effort to show why he does yeah. it and what's going through his head. Because I think 
I think if you have a well-fleshed-out villain, it makes the whole universe, that whole fictional universe, feel more solid. Whereas it would be very easy for the 40K universe to fall into, and I think some of the earlier books kind of fall into mm-hmm. this of, like, and when I say earlier, I mean, like, early, early 90s. Early, like, yeah. get a little bit into kind of cartoonish levels of villainy where, yeah, the villains are really overblown <laughs> and mustachio twist, you know, twirlingly evil. Uh, there's a really, there's a good one I've been reading lately. I need to finish up. It's relatively short. Uh, it's a, uh, um, it's a world eaters book. It's like Karn eater of worlds where it's, oh, yeah. okay, it's so yeah. where it's basically, it's like after the horse heresy, but before Scalithrax. Okay. And like they recovered Karn from Terra and he should be dead. He's basically like in a, it's kind of like in the same state that Gilliman was in. Like he's in a stasis cell, that he's dead, but not dead. He's got like no brain activity, and it's the the world eaters trying to figure out what becomes of us now. We're 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 fighting ourselves to death. We're and uh, we, you know we don't have any leadership. Angron is crazy and un and you know unfollowable. Uh, Karn's the one person who could pull us together because Karn, you know, we see Karn as the later on Karn, the betrayer, the crazy psycho. That all worked out for him. Yeah. (laughs) But at the time, like at the period of the, uh, Horace Heresy, like Karn was the XO of the, you know, he was like right on, you know, he's what, captain of the eighth, eighth company or something, but he was like right under Angron as far as like the hierarchy. And, people respected him and he was known to have kind of a cool head despite having the butcher's nails in and there's a lot of focus on like how the butcher's nails are just pushing them and driving them crazy and i love that writing because it's like you realize these are people with goals and hopes and ambitions and fears and they're but they're still evil they still do terrible things they're still traitors right but yeah that i love that writing but yeah um but yeah, Night Lords trilogy and uh, Hell's Reach are my two favorites. So I would throw just a shout out to anything by Dan Abnett because oh yeah, the Eisenhorn, the Ravener books, the Eisenhorn versus Ravener stuff's really good. Uh, the Gaunt's Ghost stuff's really good. His his horse Heresy novels are good. Like in general, he and I know a lot of people like Aaron Dembski Bowden as well. And and I've read some of his books, but Dan Abnett really kind of captures the universe really well for me. So I would recommend any of those. And then yeah, I mean there's. There's so much stuff out there that there's so many good books. Um, I would give a shout out to the uh, Masters of the Forge podcast. If you're interested in narrative stuff, they delve a lot more into the literature and the narrative uh, in the codexes and do a lot of like narrative stuff. So if you're interested in that aspect, they cover that way better than we do. Oh, yeah. I mean, that is I mean, that's like one of their main yeah, focuses. That is, that is basically their main focus. And so, also yeah. uh, independent characters are known to have interview like book yep. reviews. They they were doing like a book club for a while where like, hey, we're going to be reading this book. And then like in a month or so, we're going to have the author on for kind of an after. Hmm. Be an interesting spinoff. Yeah. Sorry. Anyway. <laughs> you but, don't want to edit another podcast. No. <laughs> <laughs> but no, there, there's a couple of yeah. good podcasts for if you want to really delve into the fluff or, or, or get to know the authors that yeah. that's a, it's a real, a couple of really good options. I, Dennis, I know you haven't really read much in the way of black. Light. No, I haven't really read much. I, I read the first one that had your brain in it, but yep. 
past that i need to go back and read the jnsr one and the other eldar ones are the ones i'm interested in i just though i read uh, actually one of our local libraries had the jnsr book uh so you can definitely check it out literally okay. <laughs> uh but uh i read i started reading part of it and again it was one i didn't get a chance to finish before i had to return it uh, it was kind of interesting because it talked about where Jane, like where Janes are and the other Phoenix Lords came from, but also intercut with and current day, whoever is wearing Jane, you know, whoever is Janes are right now. So, uh, like coming right off of the fall of the Eldar. So it, it was a very interesting back and forth, uh, story. So yeah, definitely be interested in checking that one out. And there's, there's a couple of like they've been doing a number of like Eldar focused yeah, like stories. Like the way of the. Right. And they like, I think they've got a Harlequin related book either just out or coming out. Yeah. I think it just came, I think it just came out. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one cool thing is they are taking the time to write about like all the various aspects of there's a, uh, uh, Phil Kelly wrote a uh, Farsight book that I have on my shelf I need to read. So, uh, if there's a faction, there's probably a book that covers it. And actually, I'm, I'm going to really look, look up, uh, the, James Swallow's book because one of those two books was one of the first instances of talking about the uh, Necrons. It was like before, right before the Necron Codex came out, or like alongside the Necron Codex, where they started actually having the modern take on the Necrons, oh, where, nice. where like the personalities and and the the tomb worlds actually not just being a bunch of robot zombies, but interesting. Let's see, James. While you're looking that up, as far as like the future of the 40k stuff. I, I like I kind of jokingly said yes, yes, and yes. Um, we're definitely going to see more Primarchs. We're going to see more Primarch level characters for non Space Marines, I think, um, which means that maybe eventually we'll get Vect back and some of these other oh, man, that characters cool. that have gone away. Um, and I, I definitely think that they're probably like Schism and faction, new factions kind of seem to go hand in hand for me. I think that eventually, with all of these Primarchs coming back, you're going to have more divisions and each. Each codex or each like Space Marine chapter might become their own more fleshed out individual army. And I think that's actually a good thing because even though I know in the past I've very much advocated for Well, in previous editions, standardize everything, just all the same stuff. Eighth edition has allowed and has designed in such a way that you can put in a lot more than special rules. You can put in a lot more faction specific things that the little small sub factions can re- be really good and have their own flavor and their own rule set and feel like they play completely differently. Like Death Guard is not a faction that I would have said in seventh edition would make for a good, unique, fluffy army. But with here adding, we are. <laughs> yeah, with adding a few twists of oh, here's Nurgle Terminators, here's zombies, and here's a few characters. That's where we're at. Like so. If you could do that for all these other factions, and who's to say at some point down the line there's not a Raven Guard Codex or something? You know, because I, I think you could add in a few things and make them pump them up. They go different ways with primary kind, Marines. Kind of or where they were and, starting to go with what the Angels of Death book, yeah, where they had like the extra formate, like the formations, and when they started introducing, yeah. like here's the relics for Raven Guard, here's the command, you know, the Warlord traits for Raven Guard, here's the fat, like the formation that plays to them. Cypher's still out there too. Cypher, yeah. uh, Luther is out there. <laughs> Luther's you out know there. that you know Luther's running around. And, and there's uh, with the new models and the stuff they're doing with Age of Sigmar, they can run into new alien races and stuff. Or you can f- pull out alien races from you know from the fluff. And 
for example, and I know this is one that's talked about, you could pull out like Demiurg and do a a, door, a space dwarf army. Yeah, um, just a high gravity planet. Right, it, right. So it's like you could easily <laughs> pull those things out and kind of make them their own small sub-faction. Have because the, the, the crud and do space skaven. Because the whole, like, yeah, the, the, the threshold <laughs> No, that's actually for, the, the yeah, crud are right. rumored to be space the, skaven. The threshold in 8th edition for what constitutes a complete faction is far lower than it has been before. And that's a good thing because that actually does allow you to bring in and spe- bring in new things and specialize and create these little small factions and build them well. And or, I- or other factions to build up because yeah. we need the story to progress. One, for adding new Primarchs. And I love seeing the story, even if it's on a yearly basis, because mm-hmm. that lets you tell the story and put new models and kind of get reactions from all the other factions that are out there throughout the year. And let you build up factions because Yanari need more than three characters. They 100%. And, and I imagine, and I, we, we've mentioned that, you know, we've joked before about the Inari pamphlet that will come out eventually. Right. But I imagine with the Inari, what you'll probably see is a full standalone book that has reprints of other units the way we saw it. We've seen it with, like, all the Space Marine books. Where it's like, yes, all the premieres are reprinted in Dark Angels and they're reprinted in Blood Angels, but with the slightly different traits, and then they can do different abilities. So it's like, oh, yeah, you're playing Inari... Uh, Cabalite warriors, well, they're going to have this instead of Power from Pain. And- well, and who's to say at some point in the fluff, since you've got units of guardians and units of witches hanging out together under this banner, that you don't start having a close combat guardian squad or something. Oh, you mean that comes Storm Guardians? I was well, about I mean, to say but, that. <laughs> but something like that, but like a a close combat guardians unit that has like witch weapons and stuff like that. And you start integrating them into like combined units, because if you're hanging around and you're crusading together, eventually you're going to start intermingling. A little I don't bit. know if we're at that level yet, but maybe in two years. Right. Two- but it's like you could eventually, I could see that being built up as Yanari go forward. Right. And that's how you, you start giving them their own special yeah. units. Well, and, and then and also things. maybe in two to three years, Yanari could start having their own schism where they have their own air quote. Yeah chapters or cults or Absolutely. whatever division they well and call also themselves. remember we've got the sisters codex coming out in 2019 which is going to add add rules for all the various orders of you know orders of the martyr this or you know orders of the silver chalice yeah. or um the ebon rose things like that so uh that oh speaking of sisters the two books from james swallow are hammer and, or faith and fire which is the first one and then hammer and anvil hammer and anvil is the one with necrons because they go back to sanctuary 101 oh, nice where the necro like the imperium really first became aware of the necrons because they wiped out his sister's uh chapel there so um that one though those were both really good reads um and I, I and also because i was playing you know working on my sister's army at the time they were very topical to me but i i do recommend them and there's a i think an audio drama that they did called red and black that is kind of situated between okay. those two uh and their audio dramas are also really yes. good yeah. and i'm not talking like the books on on uh, like uh, books on MP3 that yeah. you can like the audio. No, the audio version. dramas are really good. Yeah, well. I've got one called Helian Rain, which is uh like a it's a Raven Guard scout, or it's Raven Guard with scouts and like and and, ra- and somewhere else a Raven Guard army facing off against Tyranids on a planet that is just slowly destroying itself. Hmm. I think didn't we listen to that on the we, way to Games Day? We did, and it w- I really enjoyed that one. Uh, there's some good horse heresy ones. Uh, there's one that. Uh, is apparently set. It's like an Imperial Guard one that is set entirely inside a tank, like inside a Lehman yeah, Russ. Yeah, I don't remember what the name of that one is, but yeah, I've heard. Re- I've heard. I want to. I, I need to check that one out. So, uh, but yeah, as far as like schisms and new factions, 
I especially with we talked last episode about like Ford World retiring like the old cultists or like the old uh, Renegade Guard models and yeah. stuff. I would like to see Renegade Card come back because I think Chaos should have access to something like that as well. Oh, for sure. I'd yeah. like to see a Dark Mechanicus sub. I mean, a Dark Mechanicus faction because you have a lot of Demon Engine stuff that you could key off of that now. Uh, basically, let's have you know if if we're going to make Chaos the big enemy, let's have them be just a, have as many options and be just as threatening as the Imperium. And I think that that's a direction you could go in. And with these kits being retired from Forge World, it's a perfect opportunity, maybe sometime in 2019 or 2020, to have plastic conversion kits and pla- and kits including the conversion bits for Renegade Guard or for Dark Mechanicus. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason why that couldn't... There's no reason well, why that has to be Forge World only. And it's one of those things, too, where like if you're doing... Uh, for example, if you eventually spin it off and do an Alpha Legion Codex, boom, there's a spot to release your Cultus. Or if you're doing Iron Warriors, you can start releasing some of the Mechanicus stuff. Right. So there's there's ways that they can work things into the existing releases and kind of spin off from other factions. Right. To put the models out Such, there. And- for example, we could eat, like, talking uh, Primarchs, we, since I play Emperor's Children... We know Fulgrim's running around. He's been featured prominently in some of the material yeah. leading up to 8th edition. So Ful- Fulgrim is active. There's no reason why they couldn't release a Fulgrim model. Yeah. And then along with that, maybe we get an Emperor's Children book that kind of spins them off of the main Chaos Space Marine book and gives them the opportunity to release Plastic Noise Marines. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of ways they can go with that, which I is mean, great. Yeah, so... Lots of options or, you know, we keep waiting for like when Space Wolves comes out. Hey, if, if at Nova open, they announce, Hey, Space Wolves are coming up for pre-order. And guess what? Here's Russ. Yeah. I'm not going to hold my breath. I still think he's going to be a storyline li- later, storyline later in the year, winter, well, January type thing. I could I see think that. what could easily happen with that though is, Hey, we're releasing Space Wolves and here's some new Primaris kids. I think that's I do absolutely see that a thing. happening. Well, and of because course, we'll get Space Wolves Primaris convert like like yeah. they did for Dark Angels and Blood Angels and Ultramarines. Well, because in the I think we mentioned it when we did the Kill Team in the Kill Team box, the Primaris Reavers or whatever for Space Wolves have like different loadouts than they currently do. Like they have like chain swords or something, don't they? I don't. I was thinking that I was thinking that was one of the things that we looked at, and maybe I'm maybe I'm remembering that remembering that wrong. But you may be speaking out your ass, but I may be. Well, I was thinking that, the, that like one of the squads had like different weapon layouts, and we're like, "Oh, that's interesting." Maybe not, but I, I could easily see that being a spot where they they release new Primaris. So, like, there's rumors out there of like Primaris bikes at some point. You know, there's going to be close combat Primaris at some point that are not Reavers with you know knives. So, I I would expect at some point they'll release that, and like I said, maybe that's where they can release a close combat. You know, whatever they decide to have their close combat. Uh, Primaris Marines. Yeah, no, they're yeah the Reavers in there are just they are bog standard Reavers, just in there. Space Wolf colors with Space yeah. Wolf logos. Okay, well maybe like I said, I may be completely wrong. I was thinking that I saw that, but maybe not. But anyway, Cordell, that's I think we're I think we're all pretty much on the same page as far as where we see things coming in the next next year with the storyline. And I'm looking forward to when all the codexes are done, so they can start moving. You know, get and they've been laying the seeds for what's been going on. Like if you go back through the codexes and you look at the the timelines that they've put in, they're laying story seeds that they can re-examine later, or just leave open for hey, maybe you want to run a narrative campaign. And I'd like to see them doing more narrative campaign books 
kind of the way they were doing as they were winding up or, you know, getting the storylines prepped for 8th yep. edition. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I would love to see that stuff. All right, next up, a uh, letter from Manathak. And that's the name I have for him, Manathak. Hello, Preferred Enemies crew. Uh, just want to add a quick note, since I'm an Oregonian, the last blockbuster is in Bend, Oregon. <laughs> you must I go to Bend, Oregon. Yeah. Bend, Oregon to go to the last blockbuster. Anyway, another option besides the Kanban flow and lean kit is Trello. Trello is also free, but allows more than one board. It functions very similarly to Kanban flow. And another trick for Android users is that you can create an icon via Chrome to add to home screen, so no need for extra apps. Works for both Kanban flow and Trello. Don't know about lean kit. Both of these sites have decent mobile UIs, so they work well on the phone. Regards, Manathak. And again, there's plenty of these project management tools out there. But also, if you're going to use it, use it. And, you know, find yeah. the one that works for you and use it. But hey, free supports multiple boards. That's those are nice features to have. I will admit, Trello was the one I used at one time, and then, like you said, I didn't put any effort into it, and then stopped using it. Yeah. So, so if pick pick one you want, and but. Use it. Use it. Yep. All right. Next up from Brian Davis. Brian is writing to us about some of the stuff that's been going on lately in the competitive scene and some of the answers to it. Uh, so, hey, preferred enemies crew, please insert preferred platitudes and glowing support here. So we'll just copy copy and paste one of those from earlier in the episode and just drop it right in here. Uh, I was working through episode 177, just finished the ban list segment, and had to hit pause and toss out some feedback. Please feel free to edit or abridge as you see fit. No, I shall read it in its entirety because I think it's worth talking about. Caveat number one, I am not any sort of legal counsel. Caveat number two, I have an insurance background and am familiar with some of the issues from a claims angle. I've been a small event TO in the past for events that were 50 people or less. I understand the struggles of having to deal with that guy monthly or even weekly. However, I feel that any sort of ban list that does not originate from a very structured Games Workshop controlled database and terms of service driven entity is a very dangerous road to go down. The potential for liability of the event organizer for a civil suit based on discrimination or defamation is very real. This is especially true in the world we live in where players monetize their hobbies throughout, through YouTube and blogs. Whether founded or not, folks claiming that official statements or ban lists, public or not, affected their income or other aspects of life could be a nightmare come true. As you mentioned in the segment, Wizards through the DCI system has the ability to control entry into their tournaments due to the terms of service every player agrees to by being issued a DCI number. Pokemon and other games are the same way. They do this by not only controlling the toys but the sandbox as well and have the legal team to back it up i would also be concerned that if the itc or another organization goes down the road especially without papa gw's blessing they could get caught between a plaintiff and the ghost of old gw's legal department you know our old cease and desist letter friends as they throw folks under the bus to distance themselves from the mess once again you can look at some of the wizards of the coast litigation on this we play in an active and diverse hobby that unfortunately has some turds in it Call it competitiveness, call it entitlement, call it whatever, but there will always be folks who simply don't function well under the social contract of organized play. Now, please understand, I do feel each event should have a relatively tight set of floor rules, and each event should exercise their right to, under those rules, present a solid uninvite to players as they violate them. However, in the current event atmosphere, I would not do so without legal counsel. Sorry to be so windy. Just my thoughts as I process through the situation from the last six months has me concerned for the state of the hobby as a whole. Once again, thanks for the amazing podcast, even if we do end up having real-life issues intrude on our toy soldiers. <laughs> uh, no, he brings up a couple of good points, yeah. and that's one of the reasons why we did say it would have to be some sort of independent agency yep. or you know some independent group. It can't just... it. There's too many opportunities for it to look like bullying or somebody is just disliked. I, and I think... And 
in some of the conversations we've had with other other TOs in in the region, uh, one of the things that has come up is the idea of like if you have a list, maybe instead of a ban list, it is just a list of here is what somebody here's the event, here's what somebody was reported for, mm-hmm. here's how we dealt with it. Because that becomes a factual record. That is just a record of fact. This is what the person did, and this is this is how we dealt with it. Uh, now there have been some people who have discussed a yellow card, red card system for like you know like into soccer or football yeah. events, where um, basically if you get a yellow card, it's a warning. If you get a second yellow card, it's basically a disqualification. Yeah. If you get a red card, it's a just a straight up disqualification. You you leave the event. And again, you record those events and you say, at this point, like this was at this GT, this player received a yellow card during round three of our event for this reason. That's all you state. And then somebody else says, you know, we, uh, you know, and then, then someone else can say, okay, this, this person, maybe you don't not, maybe it's not even a ban list. Maybe it's just a watch list. Maybe it's just like we watch this person closely because they have a history of causing issues and events. Uh, but if it's just a factual listing of here's mm-hmm. what was done at the event, I think that gets around the idea of, oh, I have a, you know, you're treating me badly. No, we're just reporting what, what, how it was adjudicated. You do have to have a clear set of rules for that. Yes. I know there are rules in development, although I do not believe they have been finalized. So, uh, I don't think anybody has the, the final list to, to discuss. So yeah. we won't be discussing any, any, uh, particulars. Other than a yellow card, red card system has also been strongly discussed. Um, I think the, the what he mentions about terms of service, though, I think that will some sort of basic boilerplate is going to have to become part of a tournament, like any for any large event, a tournament yeah. registration, where it's like when you register, you agree to follow the terms of, like you basically agree to follow follow the all the floor rules for our event. They are posted here, so you have to have your floor rules done before you open yeah. up registration. Uh, you do, you know, we do reserve the right to ask you to leave if you violate, you know, if you, uh, if you are found to violate the, the, uh, floor rules, you know, to the, you know, whatever condition would get you removed, which should be listed in the floor rules. It's a lot of legal, you know, it's a lot of stuff that has to be covered, but you, if we're going to have people who are going to be asshats, or if we have people that are going to try to bend the rules and bend and try to lean on the goodwill of others to get away with stuff, then you have to have that kind of restrict, you know, those yeah. restrictions in place. But, but, you know, Brian brings up the, a good point. You do have to have this vetted, you do have to have this vetted and carefully monitored so that yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't sound, you know, strike, stink of any sort of discriminatory behavior because, hey, we don't like you. Well, and, and we mentioned this last time and we'll talk about it going forward as well. TOs play in events, they run events. Like it's very difficult to separate potentially, um, potentially separate. Oh, I played this guy in an event. I didn't like him. So now I'm running my event. I'm going to rule against him. Um, you have to be very careful for that because there is a very, there is an intermingling between the TOs and the players that is just natural. Like we run events, we play in events. I don't want to only run events. I don't want to only play in events. I want to do both. So yeah, I mean, it, all that stuff's being discussed and worked about. And and you're absolutely right that whatever the rules that come out have to be 
clear and consistent. Um, and I was just kind of perusing the LVO website for like the signups for just registering for the event. There is like a code of conduct and stuff that's listed on the website when you check out. So they do not floor rules per se, like in this case, because the event went live before we, uh, before, these those, before these discussions came up, but there is like terms of service on at least some of these larger events that are already in place. So I think you're definitely right though, that anybody that any tournament that would opt into like this sort of ban list or restricted list or watch list or whatever we call it would have to include that in the event when they register. The good thing with that is that since uh, BCP does a lot of event registration, that's very easy to just add to the page and like, boom, click terms of service right. and buy through the app. So it's it's not an insurmountable challenge, but you're definitely right. It, it's a challenge that has to be considered. Now, as far as like people's reputations being, you know, like, especially if they monetize their their hobby through like doing YouTube or other, you know, live streaming or what have you. Again, I think if, if whatever your public record is, is merely a record of what was done at an event, I think, you know, it's like, yes, you may build up a reputation. I would argue that it's not that much different from a baseball player building up a reputation for constantly being ejected from events for starting yeah. fights or, you know, like this pitcher is known to bean people occasionally. They get watched more closely by umpires. They may have to sit out and, you know, sit out yeah. games, be fine. Now, we're not saying that we have the power to find somebody, but, sure. but it's like, like if you but, build up a reputation, you're going to have to work harder to overcome that, that reputation, which is why, like, some of the, the groups that have been involved in some of this stuff lately, they get watched more closely because some of the players have reputations yeah. earned or not. I, you know, I'm just going to say either way. It's like there have been people who have earned their reputations and there are people who get their reputations by hearsay. The one thing I will absolutely have to say that whatever whatever format this takes, you know, whatever floor rules, ban lists, et cetera, whatever the form that ends up taking, there needs to be kind of an agreed thing that it starts now and that kind of throw away all of the previous baggage and start from going forward. Because I think you could be in a very it could be a very difficult proposition to, for example, the people that had the, you know, the ATC stuff, it could be a very easy to be like, Oh, well, we're going to retroactively ban them because of those things. And I don't think that's the way that this needs to be handled. I think this needs to be forward looking. Yeah, no, it does. Um, it and to, it's, everybody starts on the same page. And it's hard to separate that. And I, and I under, and I recognize that. Which is why it has to be just a reporting system, yeah. not a, not, there, there's not necessarily an adjudica, adjudicating board. You just, I think you just have a list somewhere that this yeah. is what happened to this person. So but everybody's, it, yeah. also, so there's transparency. So everyone sees what's going on. Yeah, I mean, more to come on that, and I mean, we'll have more to talk about on that later as we talk and, about the competitive And also the consider, well, th so. this is something I want to bring up now, because I don't know if it really falls into state of the game, but uh, we actually had a player, We Dennis and I both played at Show Me Showdown uh, last week, and uh, afterwards there was a player who was, I guess it'd be two weekends ago, there was a player, and I'm, again, not going to name yeah. names, but uh, there was a player who, after the event, basically received a lifetime ban due to basically attacking one of his opponents on social media and they got into it in a very, you know, kind of in a public discussion space and some 
pretty pointed, nasty things were said by one person, yep. uh, at least. And that person was then basically told, uh, that's not acceptable, especially in response to this. You, this was literally like the same day, like the day the event was over and it got particularly heated and nasty. And so it got back to the TO and the TO said, look, you may, you're making our event look, you know, this is not good conduct and you're, it's, painting our event in a bad look which which is especially tough for them because they were hosted at a school and doing a charity event basically yeah. and they didn't want that to get back on them but it also re- just reflected poorly on the community and well and that's and that's what as you mentioned you know the, it was mentioned in the letter you know player reputation stuff like that events have reputations to uphold as well yes at some point as i mentioned earlier gw has a reputation to uphold and if it's infringing on their reputation that could be an area where I see GW coming in. I'm like, no, we're going to take Here, over the we're going to take over the tournament scene to some degree because we need to make sure that we keep a ban list. Or, or yeah, you know, GW I, has to put forward like this is the code of conduct, and you yeah. are if you are going to represent our game, whether you are running an event or you know if you are running an event of any size, you are expected to follow. You know, especially with streaming and stuff like that being a big thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've got to have, you know, GW's, I think that's one of the reasons they're watching this is because they need to make sure that they're protected too. Oh, 100%. Yeah. So it is a mess and it's a shame that we've really come to this point. But as this becomes more of a competitive scene than it ever has before, these same kinds of discussions that other games have worked through, we need to work through now too. Yeah. So, but yeah, no, Brian, you're right. We've got to kind of watch what the legality and how we handle this so it doesn't turn into a, just a big morass of, of lawsuit, counter lawsuit, whether, you know, you know, and, and, you know, the, the less we can get lawyers involved in this, the better. Yes. <laughs> All right. Next up, moving on to uh, a letter from Dan Hamlin. Daniel writes. Hi guys, big fan of the show. I wanted to thank you for the excellent Imperial Knight coverage. I just went out and bought the Crusader kit, and now I'm seriously considering the Valiant because how damned cool is a frickin' harpoon? Very cool. Out of competitive necessity, my plan is to run one of these beasts as an allied detachment. I'll get to why eventually. Please excuse the long rant rant to follow. You may or may not recall my previous letters, but if not, let me just say I've got nothing but love and respect for you lads, but I do have one major beef, and Eric's letter that I happen to agree with, which was his letter on what is wrong with assault and how we... Sure, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, got me fired up. Uh, the crux. Why do you keep questioning whether assault-based armies should be viable? Okay, so I've only played a few editions, but I know that assault-based armies go back to the beginning of 40K. Some of the original 40K factions are assault-based. More importantly, though, just the last edition, which wasn't that long ago, assault-based armies were a thing. Further, at the very tail end of 7th, Blood Angels players got the Angel Blade Codex, which encouraged building small elite assault armies with Terminator, Sanguinary Guard, and Death Company. We bought those armies, built them, painted them, loved them, and played with them. They weren't very good in 7th edition, though. (laughs) Dare I say they are much worse now, and at the dawn of 8th edition, GW promised that assault would be back. It's not, at least not for everyone. We were also promised that everything would be good or viable, which it's clearly not either. But why shouldn't it be? And why would anyone suggest otherwise unless it personally benefits their own army? Dark Eldar and Eldar can pretty much play 40k however they like at this point and be competitive. An army of just Imperial Knights is finally viable. Tyranids are super fluffy and competitive now. Ultramarines play like they should. Nurgle and Thousand Suns can hold their own and are both super thematic. Imperial Guard is so good right now and very thematic. Why should the Blood Angels, or Corn for that matter, be any different? I don't understand. 
Now, I know that Blood Angels, at least with soup allies, are very competitive, which is why I'll be adding the knight to my list, out of necessity, to have a decent game. But nobody gets into 40k to play a mixed soup of best units smashed together from several codexes for a cheap win. And Kevin kind of waggles his hand. <laughs> okay. I don't really, I don't really want to play soup, and I can tell you from the following the Blood Angels groups and forms that most Blood Angels players don't want to have to play soup either. So I wonder, is part of the issue that shooting and especially soup armies are too good? I really love that you guys put forth some solutions to the current state of assault, though I think the imbalance is far worse than perceived. The potential output from successful assaults is also vastly underrated or vastly overrated. Rarely does an assault wipe out multiple units because it's rarely a good idea to charge multiple units and eat multiple Overwatch. Overwatch in 8th edition is so much more deadly than before with rerolls, special rules, and auto hits. Also, any good player will almost always flee combat as there's no reason not to currently. Sure that one unit can't shoot if it flees, but it couldn't shoot if it stayed in combat either. As for the alternating shooting idea, I think that would totally bog down the game and is not a proper solution. But I think Eric was saying was just side-for-side side activation, not necessarily the unit that was targeted shooting back with pistols. In either case, he's got the right idea. Shooting is easy mode 40k, and it's just as unfun to get crushed by shooting as by anything else. Shooting units and armies take so much less risk, have so much better odds of success, and there's no interaction at all. Assault has to have so many steps to go right before even getting a chance to interact and are at much greater risk. Anyway, thanks for reading and sorry for the long ramble. Off to build a night. Thanks for a great podcast, guys. Dan Ham. Keep keep in mind I'm a corn demonkin player, so <laughs> I I do personally agree with everything you said. Like I <laughs> ever including like not having your seventh edition army even exist anymore. So <laughs> No, I I mean and we we've talked about this a bunch of times. I think for shooting is always gonna be better in forty K, just because again, I think there's enough armies and there's enough aura abilities and stuff that just make shooting better for this game. And it's uh, thematically, it's a space game with guns. And that's a big part of the field of 40 K is there's a lot of shooting. And I think there, I think there are just always going to be better and there's always going to be less risk with shooting. I think there's ways that they can fix assault and make assault better. I think what GW tried to do with the first uh, chapter approved in FAQ was trying to, smooth out the issues that they perceived in shooting and I would expect that they'll then try to smooth out the issues with assault but I think it it's one of those where I think they wanted to be careful at least their first time out with their first chapter approved and their first FAQ of we are going to completely change three major elements of the game I think they're like well, let's fix one thing and see if this works and then we'll hopefully fix another because um, putting too much change at once will just cause an uproar well because imagine if they'd gone through and in chapter approved released new shooting rules and new assault rules oh, yeah they'd say well why people are like really, well, we're playing a new, new edition right yeah and they wouldn't be completely wrong right you know <laughs> No, and I, I'm along the same lines of this because I am getting ready to play um, at Iron Halo a Slanesh Demon Army. Do you know how many that. guns I have there? Zero. You're correct. And you're so, not taking Soul Grinders. I'm not taking Soul So there is no shooting phase for me. And that's why I was really, really hoping when we got the new Demons Codex that they would have flushed out some of them, maybe actually given the other demon like gods a, a shooting option because that would be kind of cool. Because, uh, I mean, we could use a new model or two, yeah. and that would be really neat, because then that would make a well-rounded army. But there are some armies out there, like Slanesh, like Corn Demon. Corn, or Corn, World Eaters. Yeah, Corn. No, I, yeah. I had to drop out the Demon King. No, Sorry, I Kev. Yeah. Um, 
Although, fun fact, we, uh, you can run a corn detachment, which is, <laughs> no, you I, can run corn soup, you just don't get any rules for I it. I get it, like, so the reason why corn demon can doesn't exist is because all of the rules that would made be that corn, army work. Would it be corn chowder? Could be oh, corn chowder, oh, you could do a corn. Bad. Yeah. You should do probably, that now, Kev, because that sounds funny. I could think of that. Uh, the problem is, is that, like, all of the special rules that made that army work Aren't just gone. don't exist anymore. Right. And yeah. that's the... That's the special sauce that's missing from keeping that. I could play all of those models in one cohesive faction and be even worse than I am at the game right now. <laughs> all right. So first, I'll, I'll say that my, my point to saying all that is yeah. I know Slanesh has no shooting. I'm going into this already acknowledging that it's going to be an uphill battle. I don't think mine has to be viable. I, for me, I just have to have a fun time playing it and make a good game for both me and my opponent. So sure. that, that's my goal. Okay, so here, so first off, I, I, I want to get this out there because I know this is this is my unpopular opinion, and then I'll get into a little bit more of where I where I agree with him. I think there is a difference, and I think people get get this confused. There is a difference, especially when it comes to competitive 40k. Oh yeah, between <laughs> viable and competitive, like competitively solid. An assault army, an assault Blood Angels army, is viable. Yes, I mean Mike Bryant or Mike Brandt took one to LVO and did did really well yeah. with it. These armies are viable. Assault based armies are viable. They function, and with the right armies, they function decently. Yeah. What I would say, like, not viable would be, like, a Tau assault army. Yeah. No, no. Right. You could. Dude, I want to see this You now. could theoretically. I've, ta- I've talked about this before. I, I could probably like, be yeah. it. You could theoretically make one. There's one or two, like, commanders are decent in close combat. Farsight's really good in close combat. The rest of the army utterly sucks in close combat. It would be a bad choice because none of, and none of yeah. your stratagems support it mm-hmm. nothing you know you don't have the tools to do any of it that is what i consider not viable yeah. blood angels assault with like i played against one first round of show me showdown the, it is viable yes. is it easy no is it necessarily the competitively solid choice maybe not maybe not but there's a difference between functional and competitive and i think that's yeah. i think assault is viable in narrative play i think assault is viable in open play yeah is assault and assault is functional in a in matched play but i don't I, know how how like competitive tier based it so is. i i think part of what you're getting at is that like there are there are units that can assault really well there are there are certain units that have because because you're absolutely correct. Assault is five or six things going right before you even get the chance oh, to assault. Oh no, he's absolutely right there. I just stand and get in range and shoot and pull the trigger. Like so, there is a lot more game that goes into getting assaults to work. Right. So at the top tier competitive level, people that are winning these major events, people that are playing competitively in a lot of GTs, those people are not are cherry picking the the units that limit the assault units that limit those uh x factors custodes bikes they're super fast they're reliable you can easily figure out ways they to can survive yeah they can do this uh captain uh the smash blood. effort you know from from blood angels like 
Smash Captain, you can get him because he can take a three up pinfall and he can deep strike and he can get in reliable. And you can take a relic that makes him immune to yeah. overall. You can so make him death company, so you get all so the benefits of that. I, I think when you, so that's the thing is like the the, and we'll talk more about this again as we get into the competitive state of the game. I don't think you can look at the game and say, oh well, these lists aren't winning the big events, so they're not competitive or they're not viable. I think it is entirely possible to run a Tau army viably, and you may disagree with your experiences, but like I think you can take some oh, of no, these Tau's, second, Tau one Midwest Conquest. Tau's I think very you take viable. some of these second tier finger quote armies and be competitive with them. I don't know that you can take it to an, a large event where the best players in the world are coming and play your way to an army that is just designed better or or has, is designed with some advantages. And I will agree with this. That's a flaw in the game design. If you can look at the entirety of everything in 40K and go, oh, point for point, this unit is 100% better than every other unit, so I'm going to take a bunch of that, that's bad game design. Absolutely. However, this is such a huge, sprawling game. It's inevitable, and I know that's kind of a cop-out answer, but that's inevitable. You're going to have mismatches. You're going to have disadvantages in there and and areas where some units are can be gamed and i think at the at the upper competitive levels that's the difference between those players and myself or any of us here they can pick out those they can see those dis, you know those imbalances and pick out the edges on it but i don't to some degree i almost don't know if that's any different than like a good nfl coach that's like Hey, I'm going to design the West Coast offense around short passes because the way the NFL is currently set up, there's a higher rate of success for the. So I'm going to build everything around that. I I wouldn't think to be able to do that, but that's why those people are NFL head coaches. I, I think that those inefficiencies and those exploits exist in every game, from chess all the way up to 40k. And the good players pick those out, and the good players leverage those, and that's why it's on the game designers to constantly try to be rebalancing. Yeah, and th- getting to the part of yeah, there's five or six things that have to go right for assault, and we've talked, you know, and that came up in in the episode, mm-hmm. you know, that letter where it's like you have to be able to get there, you have to you have to weather Overwatch. Which I'm going to throw this out there as a Tau player, Overwatch is a bugaboo that every that it's like uh, every assault player is like. Overwatch is really scary. Overwatch can be scary if you charge the wrong units. You don't charge Wraithguard with D-Scythes. You're going to have a bad time. You can charge a unit. You, you can even charge a bunch of Fire Warriors because math, is, and unless they're running as like Tau Sept, which doubles the number of hits they get, but even then it's like you work out the math you're not going to lose that many models, and if you can lose so many models that you're going to fail a charge, you probably shouldn't have assaulted that thing anyway. I I will toss this out there from my experiences that show me is it also felt better to do charges when the the opponent's going to hit you on sixes. I mean, I can either wait, and you'll hit me on like twos and threes, or I can charge now, and you have to hit me on sixes. Right. So, I mean, it kind of gives them an extra shooting phase, and like they said, they'll just run back. But if you can assault and kill them, then they don't run back. Right. But, I mean, yeah, yeah, there are... But, uh, like, I think people consider Overwatch scarier than they, ha- than they have to. And I think some of that is going back to if, you, if you're still in a fourth edition mindset where... Or fifth edition mindset where there was no Overwatch. If you charge somebody, 
you just charged them and then you'd murder them in close combat. That, you know, that's not the way it is. And it didn't make sense that, yeah, you're running at me and I'm just going to stand here with my gun and not do anything and try, you know, not try to stop you. Overwatch made narrative sense and it gave shooting armies. Cause let's put, the, let, let's be honest. Fourth edition was the addition of assault because you oh, could yeah. charge in your, the shooting army couldn't do anything about it and you could roll into another assault and then roll into another assault. There, you know, gun lines would get rolled up yeah. by one unit of like berserkers popping out of a rhino because, you know, it yeah, would, they would just you could murder. Just, you would just chain into the next one. Yeah. The one thing I will say that's different with Overwatch now is the fact that so many weapons auto hit now. Right. That that is a change from previous editions, um, and I do think because you do see a lot more units that have flamer or template type weapons or a chapter mask to let you reroll all misses or that there. There's a problem with the game. I the, think the, the re- I think the re- the rerolls yeah. the rerolls are a problem. For shooting and, you know, yeah. even outside Overwatch against, you know, shooting on shooting armies, rerolls are yeah. a huge problem. But that, that's the thing about auto hit weapons is if you're picking a target to charge because they, and they have auto hit weapons, you chose, yeah. If there were you other options, you chose poorly. And I, I mean, I don't mean to denigrate the assault players, but it's like you pick and choose your targets properly. Yeah. But, but getting, but to, uh, to agree with Dan on a number of points, and also going back to Eric's letter, I do believe that one of the things that Assault lost that it's had up until, like, from 3rd edition through 7th, pretty much, was the idea that if you win Assault, you wipe the yeah. other unit. And that's that being gone yeah. is, is hard, is hard on Assault armies. You know, losing that, it, cause that was always the, that was the bet, the reward of the, the gamble that was assault, especially, yeah. you know, after Overwatch. Like, yes, you have to weather Overwatch in sixth and seventh edition. But man, if you have a dedicated assault unit and you get up there and you win assault and they fail that morale check, they're done. You pick off all the stragglers and they're done. And that just doesn't have, you know. Yeah. You have to do all of the work that you had to do previously for assault, but you don't get the big upside benefit, and, and that's f- a problem. And the fact that like they took away things like the extra attack for charging. So th- charging, the benefit is you go first, but you a lot of assault, you know, unless something is a very dedicated assault army with a flurry of attacks, you may not even have enough attacks to really pull anything off. Yeah. So. It it is hard, and I you know, and I falling back. I think we all agreed from the last episode. Falling back is too easy. Falling yes. back has no cost to it, and I think that's also why we see so much fly. Because yes, because falling back is not a penalty, right? Yeah. So, no, there's there are definite imbalances that assault have to deal with that shooting doesn't, and I really do think, as somebody who plays, you know. I play Tau. I also play other assault. Like, I'm working on a death company in Primaris Blood Angels Army. So, I, and anyone who's seen me run my, play my sisters, I run a very aggressive assault focused sisters army. So, I'm aware of the difficulties of assault and what I have to do to try to get around them, such as, like, with my sisters, I put a unit of Repentia inside a rhino. I pop them out of the rhino and then I charge somebody with the rhino first because the rhino will absorb that overwatch and doesn't give a shit. <laughs> it's like, oh, you have flamers. That's cute. You can't, you know, yeah. you have bolters. That's cute. Okay. Now you are tied up with the rhino. Now the Repentia will charge in. And that, those are the tricks you have to use 
you you have to look at like if you're going to build an assault army and your your thing is I have a bunch of guys just standing out in the wind hoping to get to you fast enough that's not necessarily the right strategy to use but, but that's all the demonettes can do right. <laughs> but now to be fair though I know. you have an army that does have the tools to get into an assault turn one that turn, is true to get across the especially if you go first oh yeah i, I need to go first yeah oh no gosh. you you need to go first but you also you know you you can also run Model units with enough bodies to absorb a little bit of, you know, to absorb some shooting, to absorb some Overwatch, and still make that close combat. So it's the sm- the armies that really suffer, I would say, are the mid range kind of elite armies. Yeah. And I, cause like custodes have the tools to get into close combat, like with jet bikes, yeah. with deep strikers, and turn, you know, and stuff like that. They have the tools to get into close combat to weather. Overwatch, you know, and to be very successful. I mean, like once they get into assault, they yeah. really put the hurt on things. Uh, Grey Knights have that to an extent with like some of the the Terminator. The regular yeah. Grey Knights suffer a little bit. Yeah. They start falling into this range where it's like the mid range, like the yeah. Blood Angels, where you've got Death Company and Sanguinary Guard. They're good. They're expensive though, and you have to take them in large units. You can't do a bunch. You can't do small units necessarily. But yeah, it's it is hard, and I think there are armies that don't deal with it as well as others. You either have to have something that can just totally tank, or you have to flood the field with bodies. There's no middle ground, yep. and uh, we'll talk about that more when we get to the state of competitive play too. Uh, and also, I do think it sucks that Blood Angels feel compelled to play with a soup list, and I, that a lot of play you know it's a lot of players like. And again, we'll get into this competitive play, but one of the reasons we see soup lists. Which I still think is more of a chunky stew now that you can't have mixed attachments. Right. But uh, it's that idea of I need to have this to get all my command points, and then I need to have this to provide my heavy firepower, and then I can throw in like a couple of couple of Blood Angels captains. Yeah, and that's that is not good design if you want to be the Blood Angels player. <laughs> I mean, it almost feels like list building from like sixth ed, where you had your your slots that you had to fill your things with, but now it's like. Here's my battalion slot. Here's my Vanguard yeah. slot. Here's my support. Yeah, no, yeah. That, that's you're not wrong. Yeah. You're not wrong. So, why do I keep questioning whether assault armies should be viable? I don't question whether they should be viable. I question whether whether they necessarily should be as just equally easy mode viable as shooting necessarily yeah. is. And I also find it kind of interesting. Like, well, shooting it's no fun to lose to a shooting army. Well, unfortunately, there are some armies that that's like, like if you're Tau or Guard that isn't running Rough Riders, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Guard does have like one or two assault armies, but it's like, if you're Tau or Guard, you don't have a lot of options. It's like, you have the option of what flavor of shooting am I going to be using today? Yeah. I And so, do those armies, those armies are good. Do not get me wrong. I'm not, you know, like Guard is obviously really strong right now, uh, but should you know you complain that that's they have it too easy and well the salt army should have it equally easy i don't think so necessarily because you know unless you know if you're just assuming that an assault army should just be able to move across the board with no penalty and immediately get into assault and kill things very easily that's not good design either (laughs) I, i i think what i mean what i ultimately want to get to is in a perfect world both are viable paths to victory 
they don't have to be equally easy, but they have to be both equally viable. And in previous editions, it was never quite that they never quite got that balance right either. But as you mentioned with like wiping units, yes, it's a seven part process to get assaults to work. But if it works, I completely wipe one or two units. Whereas, okay, shooting is two steps, but I'm only ever going to kill three or four things. And, you know, like, so they can both be different. And I, and I'm a big fan of, I'm a big fan of like Euro style board games where you have like seven or eight different paths to victory and you build your engine and you can play this way and you're playing almost a separate game from the guy next to you who's uh-huh. building their engine a different way. I think that game design is fascinating and amazing, but they, it only works if both are viable paths to victory. And I, I don't want assaults to be easy finger quotes. I want it to be viable. And I, I do agree that right now, especially at top tables, it doesn't appear as viable as, as, as it doesn't shooting. feel as competitive. Again, yes, I yeah, think yeah, that, yeah. that terminology oh, agree, is sure. important. Yes. It doesn't feel as competitive. Yeah. Yeah. It's functional, but it's not always, it's yeah. the success rate isn't there. Yes. So I think the way to, f- I said, I, I wish I had a way to fix it because I'm not a game designer, but the way to fix it is to find a way to make it where the rewards for when you do get to assault are bigger thus giving you more incentive to do it. And I think that's ultimately like should be the answer or make it where it's fewer steps for the same reward that you currently have. Because right now it's this very long process where you have to do a number of things correct. And then at the end, you're still only killing as many per turn as you do in shooting. I mean, one, so. one thing you could do to kind of counter it would be like an additional leadership penalty if you were charged or an additional leadership penalty for yeah. every enemy model within an inch of your model up to so yeah. much. Or I mean, we have some armies that have those like negatives, like Night Lords, for example, have yeah. that built in, but you have to like triangulate three units to get the maximum effect it, of it. And it's still it, only a three. You know, and it adds, not, and that again, that adds instead of adding complexity, that adds like steps eight through nine to make this work as well. Right. So, so no, it's not, it's yeah. not ideal, but I think, that's where you could still you could have this all work within the current mechanics as set up without having to introduce a completely different combat resolution yeah. system. It's and you'd still have the option of somebody burns two command points we don't run. I think that's a fine mechanic. Yeah. But then that also gets into the whole stratagems command point thing which we'll get into right. later too. But there are I think some of these armies like Blood Angels they do they have the pieces there to succeed. It's just, I don't know if anybody has necessarily figured out the correct secret sauce yet. And yes, those armies didn't play great in 7th edition, and they don't necessarily play that way now. But there's a lot of stuff that played really good in 7th edition that doesn't play properly now. So it's, you know, you're not in the boat alone. And yeah, no, I, I agree that Assault is not where it needs to be. I will absolutely agree with that. I disagree with the idea that it should be an analog for shooting just close up and that yeah. and that it does it necessarily needs to be as equal and as easy and i'll but i'm also will totally agree as some of our discussions on kill team have that shooting maybe needs to have some more penalties although that yeah. raises a whole set of other balance issues so for example if you're being at long range is puts you at like a minus one to hit well if you're a tau player and your ballistic skill stuck at four because they didn't want to make you too good because of marker lights, 
Yeah. You're going to have to figure out a solution to that. Maybe marker lights are a thing that they ignore the penalty because you're just hitting somebody with a laser beam. And one of the effects of having so many marker light tokens is you ignore the long range penalty. Yeah. Which would require you to have multiple pieces of your army working together to get the max effectiveness. Or, or armies like Eldar, where you have 12 to 18 re- inches on your guns. Yeah. So, no. And again, <laughs> yeah, but again, that's the, that's the thing. Like, if you introduce that mechanic, then it changes other mechanics. So, we have to be careful about how we do this. That's, and that's what I kind of get, was getting to at the very beginning when I was talking about the the changes kind of being... Like, if you push one change to... Yeah, it's like, I think they're being trying to be very careful, at least initially, in what they're changing. Like, we're going to change this to because it's unbalancing the game in these ways. If we take this out, let's see where it unbalances, knowing that, yeah, it probably will swing it too much toward shooting. But then we can get an idea and we can figure out ways to rebalance it. Because I, I do think they're trying to be very, very careful with game balance. Like, that is... They've said that that is a thing they're trying to be more careful about, so... And we appreciate that. Yeah, and, and I do. And I think one play, one thing it would be interesting to hear from, and I don't think you'll ever actually hear it because <laughs> some people would not be happy with the answer one way or the other, would be for Games Workshop to kind of come out and say, well, this is where we see Assault right now, and this is our vision for how Assault works into the game, and should Assault be a... A, a path to victory in and of itself? Yeah. Or is it a tool that you use to complement other paths of victory? And that's the, you know, that's the piece of feedback we don't have yet is what does Games Workshop have? All we have to show for it is what they've put in the rules so far. Yeah. All right. So your letter was, you know, don't worry about being long winded or anything, <laughs> uh, Dan. We could go on for the, on this topic for a while. So, uh, but mo- we do need to move on. So next up is from Chad Walton. Chad writes, Hey guys, I just listened to your Harlequin episode and as both a longtime fan of the show and a longtime Harlequin player, I wanted to offer my opinion on a few things stated that I didn't agree with or at least didn't line up with my experiences with the army. First, the Death Jester. The Death Jester is valuable, just not in killing the bad guy's way. He's the cheapest per wound Harlequin there is. He holds objectives, takes Overwatch in the face, and provides deep strike protection bubbles. All that, all things that your other guys won't be or shouldn't be doing. I run two or three. I guess I, I can say about that. I will agree completely with that stuff, because remember what I talked about the Death Jester? I'm like, yeah, all I ever do with him is have him sit on objectives. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. That's, and he, the cost he is, yeah, he is very cheap. Like you said, wound per point of actually well, doing that. Dropping from seventy five to forty five points made a yes. huge oh, that, difference. Yeah. yeah, and so that yeah, now he's at a point cost where he's more viable. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, so I totally agree with his death duster thing. All right. Second, haywire cannons are always better than shuriken cannons and prismatic cannons. They shoot regular dudes about the same, and against vehicles, especially knights and Urgle, they are so much better. Okay. This wasn't always the case, but with this codex Yes, because in the index, they were heavy, and they're heavy D3. Now they're Assault D6. Assault D6 is a huge change, and you're going to wound about as much as your three shots from the shuriken cannon, and against vehicles, you'll do a ton more, and it's only five points more. Right. So that is definitely an upgrade, and it's going to cost you five points, but definitely worth it. I'm, I want to say I'm still iffy on the prismatic cannon, even though I looked at the math earlier. It is better than the prismatic cannon because if you take the prismatic cannon to wound vehicles, the only thing, and Haywire is going to do wounding vehicles better. Right. Um, prismatic cannon will do better against monsters. So if you have a monstrous creature on the board, that's the only thing that prismatic cannon would be better. Yep. And unfortunately for me, the only reason I really like it is 
I like my fire prisms, and that that gun reminds me of it. <laughs> I, I I still like I do like the the flexibility of the prismatic cannon because it does give you things that are more useful against particular targets. Because um, I mean, yes, against your standard guys, it's almost as good. The prismatic cannon has a better AP against uh, you know, like if you're going against infantry, but worse shots in the middle. Yeah, worse shots in the middle. But also those shots do more damage against everything. So it's like, yes, against vehicles, the Haywire Cannon is definitely a superior choice. But if you're playing against uh, armies that aren't as vehicle heavy, if you're playing against a lot of Nids, a lot of Demons, uh, Thousand Suns, stuff like that, the the Haywire Cannon is not going to be as useful to you. If they don't have vehicles, the Haywire Cannon's not great. Now, with the meta shifting to being more night heavy now yeah. the haywire cannon is suddenly a much better choice yeah so yeah my, my thoughts are void weaver season to taste but the sky weavers switch to shuriken can not switch uh, switch to the haywire cannons over the shuriken cannons oh yeah yeah they're yeah they're the yeah they're the haywire cannons are definitely a better choice i will totally agree with that uh third to Sigorak, or again, yeah, I'm going to go with Sigorak because that's that's how I like to say it. Sigorak's Rose is the best relic to put on a Solitaire, mostly because it lets him reroll wounds. He's not that strong. and But also because it does three damage against infantry. He will hunt and kill characters. So Sigorak's Rose, it does replace a Harlequin's Kiss, which he has a kiss and a caress. Uh, you reroll failed wound, wound rolls for this weapon, and when attacking infantry, the weapon has a damage of three as opposed to D3. Reroll failed wounds is very good. Not going to argue with that yeah, at absolutely. all. I mean, I will begrudgingly agree with the caveat of my experience of my solitaire dying in Overwatch too often is the main reason why I preferred the one that makes... The Star Mist Rain. Yeah, no Overwatch happen. But if you, you your solitaire survive Overwatch, then it's much better to do the three damage to just crush infantry. Yeah, and that's, that's one of the cases where, you know, I, I said earlier, Overwatch is a bit of a bugaboo. Uh, that's, this is a case where you're having one guy charge into a, theoretically charge into a unit. Their Overwatch is a lot more painful because it's one guy, you know, especially if the the weapons do multiple damage when they hit. Uh, That said, if you're playing smart SMRT, (laughs) you will send in troops before you'll send in your solitaire. And that's what I was going to say is, I think... You could potentially mitigate the Overwatch issue if you're layering assaults and he's coming in second. If you're sending him out to assassinate characters or sending him out to go up against large squads by himself, then I think you need to take the Overwatch. Characters, not as much, but large squads, yes. So I think it just kind of depends how you're using it. Unless the character's Tau. Because then if you assault a Tau character, you're... Everybody else around him. (laughs) Because Tau are not going to leave a character out on their own. Yeah. So I I think it just kind of depends how you're using the Solitaire. And I think it speaks to the Solitaire that he's flexible enough that you can play in multiple ways. So... Yeah. So... No, Sigorax Rose is 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 a good choice as well. It just depends on how you're, yeah. you know, how are you playing the rest of the army? How are you, you know, are you? And again, if you charge a character, you, then you're dealing with one unit's Overwatch and you know one model's Overwatch, and it's not as big a yeah. risk. So it's all in how you use it. If you want to use him as a as a character hunter, uh, so yeah, the Rose is definitely a yeah. a, a valid choice. 
Finally, Frozen Stars are the best. The ability is always useful. You're always charging and attacking. They don't have checkers, and they're the mask I play. <laughs> I did not paint checkers either. No, you did not. I would, just, for everyone's reminder, that's the one that says, if a unit with this form charges in the charge phase, add one to their attacks characteristic until the end of the ensuing fight phase. Which, hey, we just talked about. It'd be nice to have extra attacks if you charge. Yeah. <laughs> so everyone, just play Harlequins. Problem solved. Let's see. I think we like Midnight Sorrow as well, the extra movement when you fall back. and That was good. I still like Silent Shroud myself because I want to do the leadership bomb thing. Right. That, but that's building more towards like a particular archetype. Well, yeah, yes. Yeah, Frozen, Frozen Stars is, for this army, which is always going to be, always going to be charging whenever possible, that is a good one. Absolutely. Veiled Path is always, is one of those weird ones where it's just like, that, that was the one where it's like, hey, we play like Zinch. Pick a number. You're like, randomly determine a number. All attacks that hit you on this miss. <laughs> but no, Frozen, Frozen Stars is good. Midnight Sorrow is good. And then Dreaming Shadow is always good because you basically just, you're, you're all commissars, basically. <laughs> yeah. All right. So next up is from Ashley Tibbetts. Ashley writes, hi, guys. Still making a great show. It makes my week when you release a show. Got a question. When do you place Rangers before or after the Necrons, Deceivers redeploy or the Eldar redeploy stratagem? Came up in a game I had last week and was wondering if there was a tactical way of doing it. Uh, from Ashley Tibbetts of, from Australia. This is the one I didn't bring a book for. Oh, my God. I didn't either. So. I think we've had a question similar to this before when on Eldar v. Eldar match. Well, that was interesting because it was the exact same like yeah, deployment, and Army. then it was just kind of like you roll off and someone gets to do it differently. And that's kind of where I would lean towards on this is that you probably roll off or use whoever got to go first as, you know, doing back and forth, but unless there's something specific on one of the one of the stratagems that says you you place them in a certain order. Okay, so the ranger's ability is during deployment, you place them in the webway, and then at the start of the first battle round, but before the first turn begins. You know, that, that's when you actually place them. And then the uh, the Deceiver says, at the beginning of the first battle round, but before the first turn begins, you can remove the Satan Shard of the Deceiver and or up to D3 other friendly Necron units with, from the battlefield and read. So they both have set up at some point, you know, after the, you know, after the first battle round, at the beginning of the first battle round, but before the first turn begins. Now, at this point, the first battle round has begun. So this is after you've determined who's going first, you've determined who's seizing. Yes. But you're technically outside the turn structure. I believe there's an there's a fact for that. This is actually from the FAQ. This is on page four of the core rulebook FAQ, which okay. you can find on warhammer-community.com slash FAQs. If both players have stratagems or abilities that are used at the beginning of the first battle round, but before the first turn begins, for example, if both players use the forward operative stratagem from Codex Chaos Space Marines, who resolves their abilities first? Answer. Unless the rule in question says otherwise, the players roll off and, starting with the winner, alternate resolving such rules one at a time. Okay. So, because technically first turn hasn't started, so neither player is the active player. Right. Because otherwise that would determine... Because yeah, if, if be you're the active easy, player, yeah. you determine what order everything happens in. Right. Whereas in this case, nobody's the active player, so you roll off, you randomly determine who who counts as first, and then we go back and forth. So yeah. if you're the uh, Necron player and you know and your opponent's playing Eldar, then 
roll off. Oh, look, the Necron player won. They use the Deceiver first. Eldar player wins. They do their Ranger redeploy, which may or may not be a good good thing depending on on like are you trying you like if you're the necron player maybe you want to go second so you will see where they put their rangers so then you can redeploy out afterwards but it could also be a better thing to go first because once you put yours down they can't appear between nine inches that is true True. that is true so you know there's not necessarily a which one will be better for you it's very situational but yeah the the as per the core core rulebook faq you roll off you know then you just go in alternating order all right, next up is from Miguel Montalioni. Miguel writes, Hey guys, in the last show you discussed chess clocks and how they might be used in tournaments. I wanted to hear your opinion on my idea for how to use them as I think it may speed things up without taking away from the social aspect of the game. For each person's turn, they hit the clock at the start of their turn, then hit it at the end of their turn again. The player who had the overall fastest time after adding up each person's turns will get points and the other player does not. Let's say 10 points per, for the game. So even if that player loses the primary and secondary and loses overall, so he will still get some points for having the fastest turns. Therefore, it encourages players who are losing to still stay in the game. I don't know. Just a thought. Let me know what you think. Thanks again. I think night players are just getting a whole bunch of free points. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's too easily gameable. I don't disagree with the sentiment. I think that maybe needs to be fleshed out a little bit more. The other part of this, too, and this is, again, we'll... I know we've been saying this a lot. We'll pop, talk more about it, I think, later. I think if you're playing competitively, I think you're kind of throwing out the social aspect. Because right now, it seems like, depending on what type of game you're playing, you are sacrificing either playing a shorter game and not being able to jackass around as much with your opponent, or you're playing a game where you don't have that time, but it may take four hours to complete a game. And I think that's kind of just where the game's at right now. Right. So I... I I don't know that there's a way to play competitive and still have the social aspect that people are looking for, which is one of the things that I like. We talk about the LVO friendly and stuff like that or friendly tournaments, other formats of playing where you can have that and also have, you know, be a more relaxed environment. But in a situation like that where you're playing in a more relaxed environment, I definitely don't think this is a good idea because you're it would be kind of at odds with how you're doing that. So I, I well, and also yeah. I don't think this necessarily fixes the socialization problem because if you, if you can earn points having the fastest turns, don't talk to me. I'm playing. Right. Yeah. And I think we will might. talk afterwards. Yeah. I want my, I want my 10 bone. I want my 10 bonus points. So yeah, it's, it's an idea that again, yeah, like you said, Kevin, I can see the sentiment of it. I can see where, what it's trying yeah. for. But it is way too easy to game, and it puts certain armies at a huge disadvantage. Where they're, I mean, they're already going to struggle with the clock. But now you basically said, now they don't get any. You know, they. Yeah. It's like, the, like if, it, if you're if an orc player, you're never going to win. You're never getting those ten points. Right. You're just not. Or you have to build your army like because, and we again talk about this later. It will change how you build your lists so you can maximize your yeah. your time points, and that's not a good place. I yeah. don't think that's a good place either. So, yeah, and uh, and actually, yeah, when we get to our main topic, some interesting things about round length and chess clocks and stuff. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, but anyway, moving on. Next letter is from Brian Jones. Brian writes, "Hey guys, I've been looking at making a Death Watch kill team. For kill team, I want to take a black shield, but I'm not really sure if there's any benefit to taking it with dual power swords or to just take it with a powered sword or maul and a storm shield. Thanks for taking the time to read my question. And as always, keep up the good work on the podcast, Brian. So I." brought the kill team book yeah because there's gonna be a whole new realm of questions we get to get into yeah. 
So Death Watch, Death Watch, Death Watch. Which Death Watch, I mean, they just have a listing for veterans. Yeah. It's on the, yeah. Yeah. The Death Watch veteran, uh, a one Death Watch veteran in your kill team can be a black shield up to, uh, four, yeah, up to four. So you can have, yeah, you can have one black shield. The black shield, uh, gets one extra attack and you're limited to, yeah, one in your kill team. And, uh, you can reroll failed charge rolls for a black shield. So would you know dual power swords or i thing is a black shield still only has one wound and you you know you want to get them in place as soon as you know you want to have them survive to get into assault because that's what a black shield is made to do which makes the storm shield a much more important choice to make there yeah since i didn't have the kill team book in front of me i was like i don't know what the special rules are here but in normal 40k i have my black shield kitted out with a storm shield and either power fist or a hammer or something like that right just so i have the shield for survivability and then i can put a big punch on something right i don't even know if power fist is in there as an option um no they have uh the options they have are heavy thunder hammer power maul power sword and xeno xeno phase blade Oh, wow. They don't get that. The Watch Sergeant can take a Xenophase Blade. Okay. Yeah. That's that's the list of all the weapons. Uh, This model may replace its bolt gun with a combi melt, a combi plasma, stalker pattern bolt gun, power sword, black uh, power maul, or storm shield. The model may instead take a power sword or may also take a power sword or power maul. So they can have, that's why they can do the two. If they're a watch sergeant, they can take a Xenophase blade. A Death Watch veteran may, instead of the above, replace their bolt gun with a Death Watch shotgun or heavy thunder hammer. Uh, so, yeah, sh- Storm Shield Power Maul is about the best option you can take. Yeah, it sounds that way. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, you can't take the heavy thunder hammer because that thing does D6 damage, which if it hits somebody will completely wreck them to the point of, yeah, you will not survive any well, of your injury checks. It, it should. <laughs> it should. It's also a two-handed thing. Yes. That's all you have. Right. And also, because it says a Death Watch veteran, I don't think a Black Shield could take it anyway. I know in previous editions it couldn't. I know that was uh, that right. was the big thing, is that the Black Shield couldn't take that. So that should um, be that would be consistent. I would assume that's consistent. Um, but that, I mean, that still makes you strength six, AP minus one, one damage with the Power Maul, and a three up in Vuln. Yeah. I would, and I would probably go for the, uh, the Storm Shield just to get the survivability. I- I think so too. I think you always, especially with the one wound models, I think you're always looking for survivability. Because uh, as we mentioned before, with assault, getting to assault is just as important as what you can do when you get there. Right. And, it, you know, and this is Kill Team. You don't have a vehicle that can ferry you there. Right. <laughs> so good luck. <laughs> so yeah, I would, I would go with the Storm Shield just to be on the, on the safe part. Mean, and having two power swords doesn't give you any benefit. There's there's no bonus to having, as far as I'm aware, having two close combat weapons. Looking cool. Looking cool, sure, but yeah, there's no. I I actually really like the Death Watch Storm Shields though, so like I think those look really cool as well. They they do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but if you want to look really cool, you take a third sword and put it in your mouth. No, we are not going one piece <laughs> on this. <sighs> I I've heard rumors of a 40k anime, and that's as far. What I I saw a couple of rumors pop up. I think that's as concrete as it is. Wow, so. that would be that would be hilariously funny, right? <laughs> I'd watch it. <laughs> I would. Yeah. So having having dual close combat weapons doesn't provide you any benefit either. It's it's not like in older editions where if you had two, you got plus one attack mm-hmm. or anything. It's just you pick a weapon. Well, you have a power sword and a power sword, so. 
Yeah, unless yeah. Uh, so, so I would go Storm Shield Paramol. Or if you want to make sure that you hit that the attacks get through with a better AP, you could also go Storm Shield Power Sword. I mean, that is also an option. But yeah. Storm Shield uh, Paramol over dual Power Swords every day. All right, and then our final letter, which is because we don't have any Twitter. No, we didn't have any Twitter questions. No Twitter questions at this time. So our final question, our final letter is our uh, list review, and this is from Neil Hoffman. Neil writes, Hi, preferred enemies. Since the FAQ, I've been trying to rework my Thousand Suns list, and none of the combinations I've come up with have been completely satisfying in terms of a good, well-rounded list. So I'd love to get your thoughts on my current list and any room for improvement or changes and substitutions. The list is a battalion detachment and a vanguard detachment, giving me nine command points to work with. The battalion has, uh, for uh, first head, so his first HQ is Aramon on a disc, uh, with otherworldly prescience. Uh, his three powers are warp time, prescience, and death hex, and smite, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, his other head, uh, he's got a demon prince with wings, two sets of malefic talons, the helmet, the third eye relic, and then temporal manipulation and weaver of fates as his powers. He's got two units of Zangor, t- two units of 10 Zangors and Zangor blades, a unit of 19 Zangors with chainsword and auto pistol, a fast attack of uh, Zangor and six and Zangor enlightened with fa- fate caster great bow, a Zangor shaman with the four stav and weaver of fates, and then a chaos predator with auto cannon, two las cannons, and a mauler fiend with fists and lasher tendrils. And then his vanguard is a Sorcerer and Terminator armor with uh, the with Bolter, Force Staff, and Familiar, a Death Hex and Temporal Manipulation, the Demon Prince with Wings, two sets of Malefic Talons with Prescience and Warp Time, the Scar- uh, unit of four- Scarabus Cult Terminators with uh, one Soul Reaper Cannon, one Hellfire Missile, Rask- Missile Rack, and a Force Staff on the Sorcerer, and then two Hell Brutes with twin- both with Twin Laz Cannon and Missile Launcher. So And then he continues. So the three Zangor squads are their screening units. The Enlightened and Shaman deploy to take advantage of the Fate Caster's auto wound on six, and the Shaman's plus one to hit. The non-relic Demon Prince follows in order to keep the Enlightened in its Prince of Zinch bubble and keep pres- er, and cast Prescience. The Shaman casts Weaver of Fate to boost the Enlightened's invulnerable save. The Helm Demon Prince should hang back on round one in order to provide Prince of Zinch to the Predator and Hellbrutes. The Predator could advance if needed with blas- Blasphemous Machine Stratagem and Fire Frenzy as needed for the Hellbrutes. Aramon moves as needed, but his goal to, is to help the Mauler Fiend advance up with the option of using Demon Forge Stratagem as needed, plus a healthy dose of Smite from the casters who don't need to use their Psychic options for more pressing spells. On turn two, the Chaos Sorcerer... Chaos Sorcerer can deploy either on an objective or as needed to help units. Same with the Scarabic Cult Terminators. Weaknesses I see. Limited shooting. Originally, I had a Rubric Squad, but removed it to add the Shaman and replace it with the 19 Zangor Squad. Although, the thought of removing the Mollerfiend and lowering the 19 Zangor Squad for another Predator, but it seemed to shift things too far away from having a viable close combat threat, aside from the Demon Princes. The army essentially only uses five spells. Other than Smite, everything else is defensive or bolstering spell, but I could always use Chaos Familiar Stratagem to deal with that, or Stratagems. I'm still not decided on the Sorcerer and Terminator armor as opposed to an Exalted Sorcerer on a disc. With Armin and two Demon Princes, there should be enough sources for re-rolling ones, and the plus one bonus to cast and ability to deploy anywhere with the Terminator Sorcerer seems more useful. Happy to hear your thoughts and would appreciate any insight you could offer. Well, having faced down a unit of like 19 Zangors at, yeah. uh, at Show Me, I can say that that is more than just a screening unit. You can, you can buff that thing up to be quite effective. I have, I have seen a lot of people, uh, Trent, 
it runs uh, Zangor Bomb, as he kind of describes it, where it's a couple of big units and then one like full maxed out 30 man unit. Right. And you you start gaining a lot of efficiency there because you have the ability to cast spells on it and and all everything you cast on it affects a bunch of things. So one thing that I'm kind of looking at um and and again I don't I have the points here but I have to do the math. I don't know that the Mahler fiend fits particularly well. I would almost say to go with the Vortex Beast and maybe bump up, maybe rearrange some things that you bump up that Zangor squad a little bit. Maybe throw in like a unit of whores to fill out your third troop, you know, something cheap. Um, but buff up those, maybe com- combine those uh, Zangor units so you have a large Zangor unit. Keep them close to the, the Vortex Beast. You're still going to have some close combat ability with the beast because he's i mean it's not as good as the mauler fiend but it's still a monstrous creature and they're going to be buffing that unit and that unit will be able to go through and do a lot of things because the 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 vortex powers on here almost all of them are really good for a big blob of may you know of melee troops right so i that's what i would that's probably what i would jump off the page initially i like the sorcerer and terminator armor because i like that he can drop in anywhere He's not as mobile once he's on the table, but you can use him to drop in and and snipe characters, take out a you know suicide squad to take to to take out something you know some big target in the backfield. I don't know that I like taking the Terminator unit. I love the models. I think they're great on paper. I don't think they survive long enough. I don't think I don't think they put out enough firepower for their points. Right. And so that's, that's probably, and cause they are expensive. That's, uh, uh, there are 33 points per model before you put in any of the upgrades. So that is like the unit he has here. He has at 238 points. Oh, I guess he does list it on there. Pfft, okay. You yeah. should read. I should read. It's good for you. I don't know that you're getting enough for the 200. Like just as a straight swap, if you were to take that unit out and granted, I know that it, it messes with the, the force organ stuff. If you were to take that unit out, and put that many points into another Zangor unit, you're going to get so much more work done with that, I think. Or buff up one of those Zangor yeah. units from like 10 to 19. Yeah. So I, uh, Something else, uh, a power that was used against, well, not really used against me, but used to buff up his Zangors when he was assault, like when he attacked me, Glamour of Zinch, a minus one to hit should not be overlooked. Especially if you take if you decide to take large units and yeah, charge so suddenly like you have nineteen guys and you have glamour of Zinch and weaver of fates on them, you are now minus one to hit them and that's hit them in shooting, hit them in close combat, hit them whatever, and you've buffed up their invulnerable save, so now they've got a four up invuln. A bunch of zangors like that will put out a ton of attacks, and you know they whether they've got zangor blades or chain swords, you know they're going to get work done. And actually, I was looking at this as I mentioned the Vortex Beast earlier. It's 150 points. Mahler Fiend's 140. Swap it out for a Vortex Beast and find 10 points somewhere. You're going to get more work done with the Vortex. Well, between beast. like getting a few more points for Zangor, you know, like yeah. that's where you you drop the uh, occult terminators and figure out another elite yeah. to put there. I mean, and and take another take another shaman. You know, yeah, another a Zangor shaman. And and like I said. Replace the vortex beast, drop the terminators, add in more another unit of big unit of Zangors, add in another shaman, and now you have two shamans going around, kind of buffing those units as well as the vortex beast. I think you're going to like that a lot more, and yeah, I think you're going to find that that's 
because as we talked about, the the ways to really for assault to work in this is either small elite units that hit really hard or big units that just overwhelm things. Right. Uh, something else that I saw used very effectively, and this would change up the list construction considerably, uh, but something to consider is that as long as one of your detachments is Thousand Suns, you get access to all the Thousand Sun stratagems. Yep. The other detachment could be Zinch. I mean, that could that is a faction keyword. Zinch is a faction keyword. So you could have a Zinch detachment. And the reason I bring that up is then you could bring in Horrors as troops. Yep. And that would give you, you know, if you have a lack of shooting, well, Horrors, especially with some like Flickering Flames used on them to make their yeah. shooting better, uh, that is a very effective choice. That also gives you access to... Um, the Zinch cast, like the Zinch heralds, so you yeah. could have a change caster, or and, and to be honest with you, you could probably drop the Terminators, the Sorcerer. Oh, well, okay, you take Terminator, the Sorcerers, and the Hellbrutes. That's enough points to add a Zinch Demon Prince, another HQ, three units of horrors, and probably have a little bit left over. And now you have two battalions, and you're just swimming in command points, right? So yeah, I mean you could you keep the demon prince with wings there. You replace the sorcerer and terminator armor with a change caster. Yeah, who is I mean point wise, let's see, he's paying 140 for the sorcerer. Yeah, change caster is less than that, I believe. Change caster 78. Yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, and then the pink horrors are two troops. Pink horrors are seven points apiece. Yeah. Which so, I mean, a squad. So a squad of ten is going to be. Se- so he could run two squads of twenty of twenty one for what he's paying for each of those hell or like for those hell brutes. Yeah, each of the yeah. So it's that that's another option that, that like I said, it does completely change up the way your list is built. Right, because uh, suddenly you're you're giving up. Uh, he talked about possibly swapping something out for let's see. Uh, swapping out uh, the Mahler Fiend and lowering the 19 Zangor squad for another Predator. I don't think I would not lower the Zangor squads. I would no. get, I would make them bigger if yes. possible. Yeah. But uh, for example, he could get on my calculator here. So for the cost, what do we say could take out? Um, so let's see. Take out the two Hellbrutes. Yep. We're going to take out the Sorcerer and Terminator armor. Because the thing about demons is also now well you wouldn't have access to the demon stratagems but you still have webway assault so you still have you still have the well, ability to deep strike a couple of things well and that's well be. actually what, that's kind of what I was thinking here is that if you take out the sorcerer you take out the terminators you take out the hellbrutes and replace it with demon prince of zinch and a change caster and horrors that's a demons of zinch Detach- detachment so you get all those stratagems as well right because because uh, the one thing I'm looking at here is like. He's also got all his psychic powers doubled up. Yeah. Which, I mean, it gives you redundancy, which is good. But you're also, I don't think you're getting as much psychic utility out of there as you could. None. Yeah. So, okay. So, with taking out the Sorcerer, taking out the the Terminators. No, I haven't taken out the Terminators that's yet. That's 672 points if you take all that out the, yeah. to, to put in, to potentially put in Zinch Demons. And you can get a lot for that. Right. You could have a change caster and a fate skimmer if you want to have somebody on a disc. Yeah. So let's say seventy-eight plus one fifty, and then they have the the flux masters. The let's see, where's the flux master is the one that's on the uh, no, the flux master is the one that's on the disc. The change casters, the fate skimmer is the one is on the chariot. So we subtract seventy-eight for a change caster, ninety-nine for a flux master. 
We're still at 495. Uh, we said it's a hundred, 140 each for a 20 unit, st- 20 model strong. Yeah. Horrors. So that would be three, 420. We have 75 points left over. At that point, you could take another 10 man. Like I said, you could take a 10 man unit of horrors and there's your three troops for your battalion. No, that is with three oh, that's units. Three that's units. three oh, units of, okay. that's 60 oh, pink seven. horrors on the Oof. table. We could make that cheaper by making them like 15 models. Or you could save those points to let them split. That is also possible. I that's wouldn't, bo- I, I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> I wouldn't bother. do it. Actually, is, so 75 points left? Yeah. So in that first detachment, take one of the 10 man Zangor units and double it to 20 and that's another 70 points. Okay. Well, and then we were, and then now if we wanted to do a second Chaos Predator, we'd have to come up with another 35. Yeah. But that's why, okay, I said it was uh, 140 for 20. So it's going to be 105 for 15 pink horrors yeah. in each. So if I subtract 35 plus 35 plus 35, that's 105. Or add that to my put. So now we've got 180 points to play with. Drop the Mauler Fiend. So that's 152. So we got 332 points. We subtract 180 for the cost of a second Predator. Yep. So we still have all our shooty. And you have 152 points left over? I have 152 points left and over. And the Vortex piece is 150 points. Actually, so 150 points. Yep. So you could have three. Well, or, or you could put some of those points into the Zangors. Things, but, but yeah. There's a lot There's a lot of options. But basically, that would give you just as much shooting, or just as much casting, with three squads of 15 pink horrors, which, just so you know, the... Uh, Flickering Flames, it's 18-inch Assault 2, so each one of those units is putting out 30 shots, and with Flickering Flames, you it's what, plus one to wound? Yeah. Which, they're strength three, but plus one to wound is always better than plus one strength, because it doesn't matter what... Yeah. <laughs> so, you can put out an obscene number of shots with that, and you've got more command points, you have more psychic, you have more casters, you still have a... a a caster on a disc who can zip around and do stuff. Well, and you've got a lot of board control because those demons can all deep strike in potentially at that right, point. Right, because now you have access to the de- to the deep strike stratagem the demons yeah. have. And it now their stratagems only work on faction demons, so it would only work on the stuff in there, but you could deep strike in those those horrors wherever you need them. Yeah. So that would be one path to go. Is it necessarily the best path? Don't know. Yeah. But that is one path you can go. But yeah, that I think the Vanguard and notice I didn't take out that second demon prince. He's still there. Yeah. Yeah. And it, he could get moved up to the to the first battalion if you wanted. Um I mean other I think the battalion is pretty solid other than I might like put some points into I would put more points into more Zangors. Basically this kind of becomes a horde army yeah. with a few bits, you know, a few bits of strong shooting behind it. Uh, also, I want to say props for trying to run a, a Thousand Suns list without Magnus. Yes, absolutely. Which, although you, you know, with all the points we took out for doing other things, you could easily you figure could easily out. fit him in. Yeah, yeah. So, so you have options here. I think I think the Vanguard is the weakest part of this, and yeah. is the one I would look at changing up the most. Yeah, I just as much as I love the Scarab Occult Terminators, I just don't think they're worth it. I right, think they're too expensive. Yeah, but yeah, I would. Def- I think having the dual demon princes are good. Mm-hmm. Armand on a disc is good, and I think you could either make that a like make that a Zinch detachment or like a, a demon detachment. Yeah, and have you know have the flexibility there of having 
because uh, you'd have 13 command points yeah. and access to a ton of stratagems. You know, basically do whatever you want at that point. Yeah. The only concern would be if you're playing this competitively, that would, that's a lot of models to move around. So you would, time, want, it, time, time is, would be a factor. Um, time so time keep, is a factor. And also depending on what kind of mission packet that opens you up to a lot of points. But like if you're playing ITC champs missions, it would open you up to Reaper quite a bit. Yes. Or Headhunter. You've got a lot of characters as well. Yeah. So, but this current list as it's built has what four That's characters. Yeah. Too, so, yeah. well, so, I mean, at least five because you've got the shaman in there. So, so I think it just kind of depends how you want to go with it. And if you decide that, no, I like the, the cult terminators and you want to keep them in. I that's a fine decision as well. Yeah. If you're looking to be like more competitive, I think you're going to get more bang for your buck if you switch, swap them out for something else, but Yeah, and I I if if nothing else, figure out a way like even if you just drop them for a third hellbrute. Yeah. Having, you know, that would still free up something like nine, you know, close to 90 like 91 points, which you could then pour into that one of those Zangor blade units. Well, and, <laughs> yeah, so it's actually kind of funny. And uh, then have points left over to make that Mauler Fiend into a Mutalisk. Yeah. So that that's another possibility. But I would, I would say that's where I would play with the most is the Vanguard. And then if you have the points, tweak stuff in the battalion a bit yeah. with uh, eye on changing out the Mauler Fiend and uh, buffing up the Zangors. Yeah. And, yeah, look at taking Glamour of Zinch on, one, on at least one of your Psychers because that is a super useful ability to have. Yeah, definitely. All right, and if you have a list you would like us to review, we're slowly getting caught up on our backlog. <laughs> if you have a list you'd like us to review, or you have a, a question for us, or you have a correction, you you have an issue with something we said on the show, uh, or just have an event to plug, or just have a question, there's three ways to send a message to us. Uh, first is email, which is our first names at preferredenemies.com. So Rob at Kevin at Dennis at Richard at preferredenemies.com. Uh, then second way is our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash preferred enemies. Uh, that's where we post what's coming down the pipe, what we're working on, what, you know, when new shows come up and any interesting news that pops up from the games workshop news feed. Uh, and there are people there who post and ask questions and stuff like that. So, uh, you can like us there, send us a message. Third way is on Twitter. We are preferred enemy singular at on Twitter. Uh, and, uh, we post like when new shows are coming up and open up calls for questions, things like that. So you can always send us a message there. We take all of those that we get, we compile them together and we put them together into a list for our next episode. Uh, in addition, we have a Patreon. If you want to help support the show, this helps us pay for things like the new recording board we're using or pay for hotel and travel costs to go to various events. We've got at least three more coming up this year, plus LVO next year. Uh, so, uh, the, you know, getting that helps us travel and do more of these events and give, give you coverage from doing, you know, from going there. And our Patreon is basically an online tip jar. We don't, uh, lock any of our content behind the, the paywall. All our podcast episodes will continue to be free for everyone. Although we do, we are working on getting little perks and things for our, our, uh, Patreon family. So if you want to join our Patreon family and support us, you can go to patreon.com slash preferred enemies. Uh, there is no minimum. Uh, I think, well, I think Patreon has a $1 minimum. That's yeah. as, that's as low as they'll allow. But, uh, I mean, that's totally fine if you want to give and that's all you want and that's all you can afford to do or you're just like, ah, I like your show. I'll toss you a buck. Hey, it's cool. Enough people throwing a dollar. It all adds up. And we do have one new patron. We always like to give our Patreon, our Patreon patrons a shout out when they join. So Cordell Trusty, who wrote us earlier in the segment, uh, is one of our new Patreon supporters. So thanks, 
Thanks, Cordell, for joining us. So we're going to go take a break for our other sponsor identification. And when we come back, we'll be talking about our main topic, which is the state of the game here in uh, the middle of 2018. See you in a bit. Miniatures. We build them. We paint them. We love them. That's why we also want to get them to the battle and back again safely. And that's where Care Multicase comes in. They offer a complete model storage and transport system. They offer a wide selection of core trays for standard size miniatures, as well as custom cut trays for specific models. KR's trays are made of a soft foam, available in a variety of colors, that won't scratch or snag your models. And to protect the foam, the trays are carried in easily stackable, swappable cardboard cases. They also offer a full range of Kaiser bags, backpacks, and aluminum cases for transporting your KR cases. You can even choose from pre-built tray selections to suit your army, or use the Autofill app to find just the right trays for your particular force. Whatever your game, 40K, X-Wing, Warm Hordes, or Historicals, KR Multicase has the cases to fit your needs. You can find out more at krmulticase.com. KR Multicase, soft foam for your figures, hard cases for the soft foam. Are you tired of playing on a boring battlefield? Do you want to step up the quality of your gaming table and make your battle look real? Then you need to check out the Battle Mats from Game Mat. They're professionally designed rubber-based mats are just what your gaming table needs. Available in a variety of styles, with everything from rolling grasslands to urban war zones, winter wastelands to alien deserts, there's a Game Mat mat to fit any kind of terrain. Their mats are padded, anti-slip, waterproof, and when you're done rolling dice and battling on your mat, just roll it up and stick it in the convenient carrying bag for easy transport and storage. And if you don't have a gaming table, they've got you covered with their folding Gboard portable gaming area and their line of pre-painted resin terrain. If you're ready to upgrade your gaming table, head over to www.gamemat.eu and find the gaming mat that's right for you. Game Mat, giving your armies the battlefield they deserve. And we're back. And so it's time to dig into our main topic, which is the state of the game in 40K in the middle of 2018. As we are now a year and some change into the new edition, we've had one big FAQ, one chapter approved, a ton of codexes, uh, a number of big competitive events that have kind of reframed the discussion on like competitive 40K. Um, we've had like, focuses as we've talked about in the past on like friendly 40k and uh, you know they're you know how the competitive scene is affecting things or spilling over into other things and so this is a good point we've got uh you know we've got a year of gts under the belt we've played index 40k we've played codex 40k um we've played a number of different mission styles and packets and so it's kind of just we felt it was a good time to just take kind of inventory and in where we think things are. So, uh, first off, I think we'll just start with the most recent event, which was this past weekend. In fact, yep. just yesterday, uh, Bay Area Open 2018 wrapped up. Yes. And, uh, there were a couple of interesting things, uh, from that. So first off, congratulations to Don Honsoon, uh, for winning the Bay Area Open. And, uh, so preventing a three-peat by, uh, Brandon Graham. No, it was super cool because that's, uh, Don's a guy that, is from Phoenix, so he's. I haven't played against him, but I've played in events that he's been in, and uh, he's he's a, a Death Guard player. Like he's 
a Nurgle player, so he really knows his list, and uh, he brought a good, interesting list to this event. Yeah, and I think that's one of the cool things about it is it does not, I mean, other than the fact that, yes, it includes knights, which as, you know, <laughs> a lot of stuff is going to include knights right now. Um, it is, it was a very different list than you're used to seeing from, uh, you know, from most, uh, like, Death Guard players. Yeah. And I think that's cool. And I, it, that's one of the things I do want to say I really liked about this edition, especially as the rule of three has come into play and the rule about deep striking and how much stuff you can have in reserves has come into play, is that we're seeing, even within factions, we're seeing a lot of variety in army builds. And that's, for the most part, and that's good. We are seeing a lot of general army builds kind of getting similar. Yeah. And that's where that's where things are not as good. Well, I think it's definitely on the Imperium side. You, you start to see the same elements pop up, as we mentioned during the, the letters. Like, you see the Astra Militarum command point battery, and you see, like, the Blood Angels smash captains a lot. Yeah. And then it's kind of flavor to taste beyond that. Or you'll see a knight splashed in here and there. Right. And that is definitely uh, something to... And we'll get into that in a bit. I know we keep punting stuff, but <laughs> but there are... there are. I want to keep the decision, the discussions a little bit more, like, con- like contained thread-wise. So, um, but yeah. So, you know, congrats to Don for winning with a, a atypical list. I'll, I'll yeah. say that. Uh, but... One that you can look at the pieces and you're like, oh, okay, I can. You just look at it and you see how it works together. But this is also coming from someone who you, you've you've actually met, yeah. and someone who plays Death Guard and has for years, and so yeah. has learned to basically just grok that army in fullness and just really come to understand the pieces of it. And that's when those creative lists come out. If from you know that seem to come from left field a little bit, is it's from someone who knows that army plays it has played it in multiple iterations you know across editions and even within editions and has really come to find a tool set that works and maybe one that other people aren't quite ready for because it breaks meta a bit uh the same thing could be said for tony thabot who won show me showdown the week before uh and uh tony was playing an inari dark eldar list that uh made heavy use of hellions in a way that most people were not prepared for, and he took it all the way to the top table and won. So, and again, Tony is someone who has played Dark Eldar and Harlequins in some f- some flavor or other for years now. Yeah, and so he has come to really examine what that army does, and he gets a lot of reps in with it, and he he looks for the tricks that other people aren't necessarily expecting. And I like how just he seems to think outside the box, and I don't want to say he goes against meta, but he doesn't play too meta other than understanding it and what he can do to kind of maximize what he's familiar with to go against it. Right. See, this is this is a big part of the reason why I will probably never be like a good competitive player because I have hobby ADHD way too much to just lock in on one army that that much and like build one army and then play it for a very, very long time. Well, and um, to, to be fair, Tony yeah. has also played like Ooh. Night Lords and he's played them under Chaos Space Marine rules. He's played them under like Blood Angels rules and mm-hmm. Raven Guard rules, you know, but because he wanted to play uh, Night Lords yeah. and trying to figure out what was the right, you know, what was the thing that reflected how he wanted to play them. But then he's also, but at the same time, he was also a very heavy uh, yeah. Dark Eldar and uh, Harlequin player. Yeah. So, 
so yeah, he's he's been able to take that and hone in on hone in on that and just you know focus and and like you said, Dennis, play understanding the meta, but not just play like oh well, the meta says I should do this, this, and this, so I will take this, this, and this to to match it. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I thought was interesting about Bay Area Open, and uh, we also saw this at uh, Show Me Showdown, and I'd like to think we were one of the first events to kind of, no I, I, to to really yeah. take this as this is the thing that we probably should do, and that is the three hour round. Yep. Now the, I'm not saying now at Bay Area Open they did not do this to the exclusion of chess clocks. Uh, from what I understand, Bay Area Open chess clocks were in use on top tables on day two. Yeah. I mean that was mandatory for those tables and for everyone else who wanted to use them as supplies were available. So chess clocks were an option. If you use them, you use them using the ITC chess clock rules. If yep. you were doing well on day two when you know you're getting to that top tournament level. Uh, then they wanted those, those were in place to make sure that your top tables were not being slow played, Mm -hmm. which I think, I mean, that's where, especially when you've got an event that is a hundred plus people and you have, you're going to be streaming those top tables so that everyone can see what's going on. You want to make sure those games are as that everybody is playing to the best of their ability and not gaming the time system to try to screw over their opponent. And I think. This is where chess, I, and I think that's where if you're wanting that level of competition, yes, chess clocks will give you that. But the fact that it was in combination with three hour long rounds, I think makes a long, makes a big difference as far as getting games finished on time, but also having games where as we've played, you know, when we've played them at, uh, Show Me Showdown, when we had them at Midwest Conquest, uh, they give you that time to think. They give you that time to play to discuss rules, to call a judge over if you need it, but you also still have the time to finish games. I think, I believe every one of my games went to at least turn five or six or, you know, came to a natural conclusion, usually with me being tabled, but that's beside the point. But no, that happened a lot. Games (laughs) games tend to finish when you have three hour rounds. Three hours is how long a a well-paced you know, without a lot of, you know, without a lot of socialization, without a lot of breaks, but, you know, a, a moving active game of 40k at 2000 points takes three hours. Yep. And I, th- I think trying to cram it into two and a half hours is really pushing how far you can do that. Is it possible? Yes, it is. Is it good? I would argue that it's not. Yeah, I, I would definitely say that it's not good because if you're trying to fit it in in that time frame, you're you're doing it to the exclusion of a lot of armies and a lot of builds. And I think that three hours opens it up so that you know horde armies still take you know still require you know what you're doing and move quickly, but you're not you're not shutting those types of builds out that want to take larger units or more units, things like that. So you're opening the table up enough to allow for those types of things. Um, I, I still personally would kind of like to see a points reduction and I know we've had the conversation back and forth, but I I would, I would much rather do two and a half hours and I think less points, but that's, but that's preference. Um, I think if we're going to stay at 2000 points, I think three hours needs to be standard. Uh, Yeah. Uh, I think to get two and a half hours and still get a, you know, to get two and a half hours. Cause as we've just, as we've determined, 
250 points is not enough of a drop. I know Games Workshop is kind of pushing 1750 for their own events. I think for two and a half hour rounds, 1500 points is where you need to be. And 1500 points also does, if you're following the guidelines in the rule book, uh, that also does a few things like suddenly you drop from three detachments down to two, yep. which makes a big difference, which suddenly can, can you do that three, three-pronged army where you have the command battery and a smash captain and or, you know command yeah. point battery smash captain and a knight no you can't because pick two yeah so uh yeah i would i would like i wouldn't mind seeing that but i think 2000 still feels like f- I, the games i'm getting out of 2000 are still good and i think yeah. three but three hours is where is the sweet spot for that i think yeah i would agree with that but um yeah show me showdown uh I had some of the opponents I faced, like I faced a Thousand Suns list that had a bunch of Zangors and a bunch of Pink Horrors. I faced um, a list that had Guard and Dark Angels and Custodes. I faced a Nids list that had, uh, you know, had a unit of 30 Termagants, had Gene Stealers, but also had like some big shooty guys. Um I faced a list that had like 20 death company and a bunch of it or, uh, inceptors and scouts. I faced, uh, you know, I, I faced a, a dark elder army that I had like 19 drops and they were surprised. They finally found someone who had more drops than them because they had 18, <laughs> but a, a lot of drops, but like five of his drops had additional units inside. So, <laughs> so I, you know, played it was a, vehicle heavy. Yeah. It yeah. was very vehicle heavy play, but, Again, it's like with all those variations, we still finished all our games on time. So, uh, it, three hours is very doable and, and does support a lot of, a lot of army types better than two and a half hours worth. Yeah. And even in a, in a, in a chess clock environment, that's an hour and a half per player. Yeah. That's still enough to get, you know, if you figure 15 minutes, I mean, that's 15 minutes a turn, although I know that also includes, uh, deployment time and such, yeah. but that, that's where it encourages you to deploy. Qu- I think deploying yeah. quickly becomes very important when a chess clock is in play because you don't, because every, every moment you use to figure out with the perfect deployment is a moment you don't get to play later on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and this gets into that discussion of, of chess clocks that somebody asked earlier and, and timed games. And do you give points for that? And, which then gets also, as we mentioned, into list building. Now, these events that we like, we played at Show Me Showdown, uh, and Bay Area Open. Obviously, was also uh, both of these events. Uh, well, we didn't play at Bay Area Open, but <laughs> both of these events used the ITC Champs missions. Yeah. Uh, you played an event in Arizona that used an ITC yeah. Champs missions. So at this point, we've uh, up until this point, we've mostly been playing either the Renegade format missions or the older set of ITC missions that were first adapted for uh, 8th edition, uh, which I wasn't a huge fan of the older ITC missions. I found their use of Maelstrom to be very swingy. I like the Champions missions a lot more than the old ITC missions. Right. Uh, and we've even found that uh, like for the upcoming... Uh, like some of the changes to, that are coming to Renegade, it, there's a possibility Maelstrom may either be very simplified or going away. It's yeah. uh, going to that choice to the thing where you kind of pick two or three secondary missions that you just play the yeah. whole game seems to be where mission design is going for competitive play. And I, I really think that that works because one, 
it gives you a chance, no matter what your mm-hmm. opponent's playing, to pick something that will either be your strength or their weakness. And two, I think people are getting used to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, ITC Champs has kind of set the... I. I don't want to necessarily say gold standard, but they've kind of they set the bar. They set the bar for what what that looks like, yeah. and like like I think Nova is kind of has that same kind of secondary yeah. choosing. Uh, obviously, Renegade has primary choosing, and then picking Maelstrom. Like I so said, I think Maelstrom may be going away or very simplified. Now, one thing about ITC champs uh, about choosing those secondaries is I do have some issues with how those secondaries are constructed and how heavily they inf- they impact list construction yes and that this is an addition that this format this this particular format is a list builders edition. now you still have to be yeah. able to play those lists well but you can definitely be penalized if you don't build your army for itc yeah. you cannot bring just any army and drop it into itc and expect to do equally well as you would do in a different environment yeah well with the expectation with the renegade missions since you're you've got four missions you pick three basically to play is that your opponent has your opponent may not have the counter for your list to play against you so you know th- there's some balance there's a little bit of strategy there so you you could potentially show up with the list that has a bunch of kill points and maybe not face kill points every game. You'd still be at a slight disadvantage on some of the other ones. But with the ITC champs missions, there's no restriction. If you show up with a list that gives a ton of kill points, you're going to face that secondary every game if your opponent knows what they're doing. We've got a lot of characters. You can use a headhunter every game. Yeah, Yeah, and I don't... That's the part of the ITC missions that I don't like, is that I think it does very heavily influence... Uh, list building, you know, list design and list building because you can game the system where you can build a list that theoretically doesn't give up max points on any of the secondaries. That's why there's also secondaries that don't require your opponent's interaction. Sure, sure, but it's like, but then you're, but those are harder to do. Oh yeah, well, that's the yeah, thing. Yeah, so it's are. like, which is part of the reason why Don's list for Bay Area Open was really good, as we talked about it off air. It doesn't give up full points on Headhunter. It doesn't give up full points on, uh, Warlord. War, so Kingslayer. Like Warlord or Kingslayer. It's like, it's, it think, gives up a lot of points on those, but it never, you never get max points. I think we found the only one that it definitely would always give up or could give up points with Big Game Hunter. Yeah. But because three of those were Death Guard units. Yeah. It, and they're tough, you know, they're vehicle, they're tough eight vehicles with disgustingly resilient and they're, Still demon vehicles, so they still have the five up in them. Yeah, so good luck getting getting those wounds on there. But, right. I mean, and, and again, that's I said that's good list design for those missions, but it, the list building, the secondaries impact list building so much in the ITC champions that it is possible to build your list for that rule set. You have to yeah. if you want to do. Uh, yeah, because I think it's, it's it's not so much that like it helps a little bit on the margins to like okay, I don't quite max this out, but if you're not taking that into account, you show up with a list and you'll just be giving up scores of Yeah, and that's what I think Rob ran into at Show Me Showdown, and we've kind of been coached that when I take my Slanesh army to Iron Halo, I'm not taking 30 squads that are demonettes. I'm going to reduce them down to 19 for some strange reason. Right, yeah, that's that's where I don't like is you get some very unnatural list building where you are taking things in certain quantities to actively avoid giving up points. 
uh, which is weird. Um, I, and I don't think that's necessarily that, that's kind of, I think, an unintended consequence. Now, that particular one could be fixed by getting rid or altering one secondary, which is Reaper, which Reaper is weird that you get a point if you kill a unit of 10 or more. You get two points if you kill a unit of 20 or more. And you can only earn up to four points doing that. Right. So, like, Dennis, you're taking four units of 19, so you get almost the benefit of having 20. Although, if with no, Demonettes... No, I don't get a benefit of having 20. But you almost get there, but you don't get there. Yeah. So, you get the, the number of bodies, but you don't get the extra attacks that you would get from having 20. Yeah, which adds up, but I'll, I'll yeah. make do. <laughs> yeah. I'll make do. Yeah. But, but I will say, t- to be fair on that one, though, when we started getting into Renegade missions... And that started becoming a thing that changed people's list building as it well. Did, it did. So whatever you set the missions to be, it's always going to change list building. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's just that there's a few particular ones that either you see people building towards so that yeah. they just never, you know, it's, they actively avoid giving up certain points or like my case where I brought four large suits to like i brought two riptides nivara and a ghost keel to uh show me showdown and i really wish i hadn't brought the ghost keel one because it was too far for you know like i was using it to infiltrate and i I used it badly i will totally put that on there and i think it's kind of it's a unit that's in a weird place in eighth edition because it wants you to to infiltrate it but it also doesn't want you to get too close with it But the other thing was, it was a fourth choice that I didn't necessarily have to take, and I ended up giving up uh, Mm -hmm. Big Game Hunter every game because I would lose all four suits almost every game. Suddenly, I've given my opponent a way to max out points that, just like I took six characters, which left me vulnerable to Headhunter. Yeah. And I didn't think about that when I was list building. I was thinking about, well, this this will work well, and this will work well. And I could have dropped two of those characters and it really wouldn't have impacted the list all that much other than like two or three. Like if I dropped three of those characters, I would have had probably just as much efficiency without giving up max points in that regard. And that's that's where the list building gets weird. But I I think where Renegade does it, it's it colors your list building, but not as heavily. You look at your list and you're like, well, am I likely to give up? assassination easy assassination targets yeah. well okay yeah there's going to be some things but i can probably protect them or in and, and depending where renegade goes with the maelstrom secondaries that could color this even more i think part of it because they the itc missions are the secondaries and not the primary i think that's where it seems like it skews the list a little bit more because okay if i take three versus four I'm still getting most of the thing. I can still complete my primary, but I'm not going to give up this extra point for a secondary, or I'm not going to continue to give well, this every game. The so extra points for the secondary add well, up. Well, no, no, and that's the thing is they add up, but it's unlike at Renegade where you're like, well, yeah, this list is going to be vulnerable to kill points, but I need to take all these units so I can win my primary. Yeah. Like it, 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 it's it's interesting because it's the, the the variance point is more important. It almost impacts your list building less because you you're not going to tailor the list in little small ways. You might redesign a list or something, or you might build a list a certain way from scratch, but you're not going to take a list and then tweak it and remove a, a, a demonette from each unit or something to get them under twenty, or remove this one character for this reason. You're you're not doing those little small adjustments and weird things 
uh, in the Renegade missions because if you've put them in there, you probably need them to complete your primaries. Right. So it's, and like I said, I don't, I'm not, it's not a criticism necessarily in my case of the ITC missions. It's, it's different and it colors list building a different way. And that's, as we've said before, why we, why we support the Renegade missions. I want there to be multiple ways to play 40K. Yeah. I want there to be multiple competitive formats. So I love that there are ITC missions and Nova missions and, and Adepticon missions and Renegade missions and book missions. Um, it's just, it's interesting how they, it's interesting how it impacts. I do like as mission design goes, it does seem like there's more player choice involved, which I think is a very good thing. Right. Player and player choice is good. Um, I also think that three, again, going back to, to round time, I think three hours is also good because it helps with some of the issues of bookkeeping because yes. ITC has a lot of bookkeeping. It there's a lot really of, because every turn at certain points you're checking, did I kill anything? Am I controlling anything? Then at the end of the turn, did I kill more? Did I control more? Yeah. Did I get the bonus points at you know during my turn? The one thing I will say is I really like the ITC mission score score you know scorecard. Oh, the score sheet. I think the it, score it, sheet is great. It makes it's it very, very intuitive. I really that's the one area for renegade missions that we need to improve on. Is the scorecard for the renegade missions is a little bit wonky still? Yeah, that's, and we've messed with that format for years, and it still hasn't quite got it right. The ITC championship missions have a great format for the score. And I will say this about ITC: we've only played it for like a practice game or two, and then the show me showdown, and it became super intuitive. Oh, yeah. it's the end of my turn. I'm going to mark this. This yeah. end of the round. Okay, we mark this. So book- bookkeeping was there. But it didn't feel like yeah. it impacted or slowed things I, or, down. Or, yeah, it's like, okay, so it's my opponent's turn. Okay, he kills, killed a character. I'm going to circle a point of head for yep. Headhunter for him. And then at the end of the, every round, my, like, sometimes my opponents and I would be like, okay, so for you, I have this, that, like, with yep. two here, one here, three here. Okay, yeah, I've got that. And so you just make sure that you're both scoring things properly. So it does give you the sense of this is a collaborative game. You're, but you're yeah. playing against each other, but you're playing with each other, which yes. is, is good. Um, and we had like we had discussions on the way up of like okay so my army my opponents are probably going to pick this this and this against me what what well i'm just laughing cuz everything we said about my army didn't happen well okay well, so <laughs> so, that's, so that's uh, funny though. story funny story <laughs> uh dennis and i got to show me showdown and we had we're unpacking our armies and uh I'm in the midst of getting my towel set up on my <laughs> display board, and Dennis comes over to me and he's like, "Rob, I have a problem. <laughs> I have half my half my army isn't here." I'm like, "What?" And uh, what you want to explain? Yeah. Um. As I was getting ready, I had a box with two wraith knights, and then I put an- apparently another box on top of it, not thinking anything of it. So then it was time to pack my bag. I just grabbed the box on top because, of course, that's my army. And so I got to Show Me Showdown, opened my first box, and instead of two Wraith Knights there, it was two Wraith Lords. And Not like, the same thing <laughs> at all. No. Not quite. No. No. Mm. So I will say, though, much props to Nathan Martin and Michael Prater yes. at Show Me Showdown. They had two armies set aside for ringer purposes, one of which was a custodes army, which was done by Michael Prater and looked beautifully beautiful. painted. Oh yeah. my gosh. And all of the hands and weapon options were magnetized. So you could actually swap between sword and shield or um, spear oh, nice. on all nice. the guys. <laughs> so, uh, so th- since Dennis, you have experience playing custodes. Uh, they graciously let him use the Custodes army and did not have him play as the ringer. You were actually earning points. I, I earned points as Custodes. Yes. Good job. So I'm, I'm not a dirty Xenos player now. 
Well, I mean, I still not am, only but... a dirty Xenos player. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you're well rounded. You're a Xenos Chaos Imperium player now. Actually, that's kind of true. It is. <laughs> <laughs> so, so are we all? So are we all? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so are we all? <laughs> One of us. <laughs> but uh, to, to be fair, like you were also saying about points, is is we we talked in the car about what we're gonna go, what we're gonna do this and. And when I went over the list with, with Michael, since he built it, he told me his strategies with his thoughts in mind. And he said, yeah, and I built this list so I would give up very few points on the ITC yeah. secondaries. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, uh, during lunch break, we'd look at, like, or, like, you know, when pairings were up, it's like, okay, so I've got, like, pairings are up in the middle of the lunch break. Okay, who am I playing? Going to, and this is one of the great things, you know, right now, like, with Best Coast pairings, like, okay, so this is who I'm playing. Let's look at their list. Okay. If you're I'm- on... Apple. If you're on, hey, <laughs> get with the program, man. <laughs> you can still view the list on Android. Well, maybe no, not the it, app, it, it, it keeps on, on, it keeps on saying yeah, y- right. you have to be a person to sign up for. That's right. It's the player app. The TO app works, but the oh, player okay. app doesn't. That's but yeah, so so there's some. But yeah, you could look up somebody's list in the roster and uh, see, like, see their list and like, okay, so they're running this, this, and this. Well, my best choices for secondaries. So there is that strategy of seeing what your opponent has and and being able to quickly pick out what your best secondaries are and and I do like that there are secondaries that are based entirely on what you do and don't have anything to do with what your opponent has like recon and behind enemy lines. Mm-hmm. I also like the addition of old school. Yes. Uh, old school is fun and it's most people I played against use that and I use that for I think three of my games. Yeah, as I used well. to like two or three of my games. Uh, old, uh, Recon was another one that's popular if you've got the mobility to do it. Yeah. Um, but uh, and Old School does have one of the best variations on First Blood I've seen where it's destroy a unit in the first turn. Just, and they have Last Blood destroy a unit in the last turn. So uh, and tra- that's all in the effort of keeping everything at four points. Yeah. No, I do like that and I think that I think that old school, a lot of people pick it just because it's very familiar as well. Like, I think that's, uh, so it's good to have that. I, yeah, I I, I do like the ITC mission designs. I don't like how easy it is to kind of game the secondaries a little bit, but I'm willing to trade that for the the fact that I do think it's a much, much better uh, set of missions than the original ITC missions. Yes. No, I totally agree with that. I had, I like I said, I found some of the the old ITC missions and basically the ITC missions before were book missions with some maelstrom yeah. cobbled onto it and that's yeah. that and it wasn't just didn't really fit no yeah. no it did not and especially cuz it had things like the relic which was <sighs> is not a good competitive mission at all no. <laughs> and i i have to say that even though the scoring on the, there's a couple of things that i and i'll i'll chalk this up to a little bit of ignorance a little bit of misconception uh even though the scoring is on i uh, the scoring on ITC missions is always did you kill stuff did you hold control objectives because and I never was a fan of the well ITC well you, they pre-place all the objectives for you and there's no flexibility and that whole part of the game is gone a that's not true there's a number of missions where there's at least two missions where yeah. you do place your own objectives and there may or may not be one in the middle depending uh but also the fact that um you know, with the deployment being completely random and, uh, you know, just the because the scoring 
is focused on, you know, because the number of objectives can be very different, because the bonus that you can get for holding objectives is different, those games felt very different, even though basically the game was the same. And I think that what you said there is the big difference, even though the objective markers were set positions, which made it so you could have a balanced board rolling randomly for deployment type is what shook things up yep. as opposed to everyone's playing hammer and anvil. Everyone's doing Dawn of War. And I, in a way I kind of liked that, even though I got Dawn of War, like I think three of my five games. Yeah. <laughs> did you, uh, how did you guys have the table set up for, for show me showdown? Um, there were a bunch of individual. Tape. So it was kind of like how we have it set up where you had like a three sixty. Yeah. Oh, around each table. Okay. Cause the last several events that I've played at, because they've been in smaller stores and stuff like that, it's, they've been like, end-to-end tables and i because of that that colored my opinion that i didn't like the random deployments oh. because you wind up where you pretend where invariably you have we're playing hammer and anvil next to someone that's also playing hammer and anvil so you're working around people to play the you know so like well that. if it was a fixed deployment sure. you'd have both you, you people can still playing potentially hammer have that same issue too yeah. right but but well, and those like table to table to table to table like on one long yeah. row those are always problematic because you end up with situations where the like maybe it's the side of the table you ended up on is not the one you really want to be on, but now you have to go through the whole trouble of <laughs> reload, like moving all your stuff, making your opponent trade places with you. All right, I'm gonna all right, I'm gonna walk around. I'll be there in five minutes. Yeah, right. And which now that's cutting into deployment yeah. time. Yeah, that's not good either. And that's that's just an issue with some venues need to yeah, and you know, have that space limitation. Sure. And like I said, the last couple of times we played was in a store, and that's just the space they had. So right, it's not a big deal. It's just that personally colored my opinion probably on. I didn't really like the random deployments because of that. But yeah. But you're exactly right. It would have been the same if we'd been playing fixed deployments. So, and you know, it was, it, yeah, having the random deployment kind of replace the random objective placement. Yeah. Um, it does. I will say though that puts even more emphasis on the tos making sure that the tables have terrain and looking when they set that terrain up, making sure that it works in six different ways or at least yep. three different ways. Cause Vanguard strike and, and like spearhead assault, you know, like the table quarters one are similar enough. Uh, the two, like, and there's basically the two variations on Donna war, the two mm. variations on hammer and anvil. As long as it works roughly for those three ways, uh, then it's fine where it gets problematic. And this is a problem that every large convention has is when you start getting down towards the bottom tables and you st- and terrain starts getting sparse because you want to have your best terrain on your top tables that is you know that's yeah. the most visible you want the best games to be there so you want that to look good and you want that to have good terrain where i struggled and this this hurt me quite a bit is table 20 where i spent my last two games at uh, at show me showdown because i went oh and five and would have gotten dead last if i didn't had a decent painting score was uh uh and nothing against nathan and crew for who put together show me showdown because like i said this is a struggle for every event and this was their first year and, and we've heard feedback on our lower tables too. yes yeah so, so I mean, we have just as much you know <laughs> it's just as big a complaint yeah. and some, one we need to address as well is that it terrain gets sparse and that will, ha- especially in this edition, that can have a huge effect. On that table, there were two, there were like 
four towers, one in each corner of the, you know, like one in each quarter of the table. And there were a couple of craters. I think there were like four craters and on the table. Two side walls. And two side walls that were just kind of in the middle of the table. To kind of break it up. Break a line of sight up a little bit. Mm-hmm. But there were no ruins to really set up set up anybody in to get cover. There wasn't a lot of line of sight blocking stuff, especially depending on which deployment you had. Like if you had hammer and anvil, there were just long straight fire lines available. And that you think, well, you're playing Tau, that's great. Well, but if I don't go first, yeah. I don't have anywhere to hide either. Right. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was also on that table and had no issues as custodes walking across to fight some dark angels. Right. But that's <laughs> and, so th- that you know, for your army, your army is not it was made, fine. Right. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. you don't need to take defensive positions. Correct. You want to get up there and get in people's face, and the less things in your way to get, it made it nice. Yes. Right. So. It's that one was that it hurt that competition for me. Would it have changed whether I won or or lost those games? Maybe, maybe not. But it definitely would have helped if I'd had. It would have helped me if I'd had better terrain. But I also understand that's what I get for ending up on the last table. <laughs> you, you risk getting, you know, getting the the butt end of the terrain pile. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the towers look nice though. Well, they, no, they did. I mean. <laughs> The every, and it was on like a, one of the lava mats from like front lines, so okay. it it looked good. It all thematically fit, but it was because it was like they were these black ruined towers. Okay, so I mean yeah. thematically, like, if that had been an Age of Sigmar table, it would have been fantastic. Uh, for 40k, it was a little sparse, yeah. but I'm also uh, the fact that I didn't play every game on that table, so I can't blame my first three losses yeah. on it. So. You were kind of anchored to that table for a long time. I, w- I was anchored the last two rounds. But, uh, <laughs> well, like I said, I was on that table once, too. So. Yeah. yeah. So Yeah, but it's way funnier to make fun of him. Yeah, no. It's, okay. I'll take it. I can take it. But yeah, it's, uh, line of sight blocking terrain is still a big thing in this edition. Yeah. And it's still... Because terrain, and it partially it's because terrain is effectively useless. Other well, than what can you not see through it? This this is maybe a good uh, a good lead in with terrain and stuff to also talk about the prominence of shooting. Yeah, um, and I think they kind of go hand in hand. I, I think terrain effects this edition aren't as useful. So there's less cover, which means shooting is even better now, which means assault gets a little bit that much worse. Right. Um, and this is where, as we've mentioned before, I, I think that. The long range penalties in kill team might be a solution. So it's like, okay, anything over this range is minus one or, you know, however you do it, however you decide to port that rule over, potentially allows it so that even if you have an open table, you're still not just getting gunned down as you walk across the board. You know, that that might open it up so that it doesn't put the same the same issues on like the TOs to put to spend money, put terrain on the table. Like that may be another way to kind of get around that a little bit. And it could make the vehicles that have big guns with obscene ranges, like a rail rifle on a hammerhead. Yeah. I mean, or plague burst crawlers or, you know, well, I mean like 72 inch range. Now you still got 36 inch range. You'll still cover the table at full ballistic seal there. Yeah. Or for most of it, you know, yeah. Yeah. So, so what is this penalty? For, I hear it's not there, and right. the, you don't really see the rail rifles because other things are. I think the iron right. can. Yeah. Yep, you're seeing iron cans because it's more shots. It's still strong. It's, yeah. It's just like I'm surprised that they basically let Imperial Guard fire, um, like Earthshaker cannons and basilisks and stuff with no penalty 
even without line of sight. Like that, that's still because one of my games that had guards splashed in. Um, yeah, he he had his guard in a building, and they were firing their their mortars through the building to hit my guys. On I'm like, and he said, "Yeah, this is stupid, but it's the way it's written." So, <laughs> I I don't want templates to come back. No. I will preference this by saying that. I did like for the things like the Earth Shaker cannons or things that were indirect fire, the full 2D6 scatter on them instead of, you know, what, instead of the, that was a good balance point that those like always scattered regardless, even if you hit direct. That was a good balance. I would like to see something like that come so, back. So I'm going to throw this out there as a potential theory, and I know we'll get pilloried by guard players who will not be fans. <laughs> but, okay, so guard ballistic skill is four, right? Yep. Let's say we institute the long-range penalty. Yep. So now Earthshaker Cannon hitting beyond 36 inches is at minus one. So now your so ballistic five. skill five. Yeah. Breaking line of sight applies a minus one penalty. You can target something outside line of sight, but mm. you are minus one to hit. So now you're hitting on sixes. Now, most of those guns do like 1d6, 2d6 shots. Yeah. Now, firing at something blind, basically blind, blind firing, firing at something yeah. is a, um, you know, it's a crapshoot. It's effectively Overwatch. Yeah. Yeah. But, at the, but that would kind of bring back that sense of 2d6 scatter. Yeah. You might get a lucky shot. Also, you could then put in units that are like spotters, like maybe your rattling snipers also can spot and will yep. allow you to ignore the penalty. Or you could have a stratagem long term, yep. like spend a command point or two and ignore the, sh- you know, ignore yep. the uh, line of sight penalty or ignore mm. the long range penalty or shoot at full ballistic skill. Yeah. No, I. I- there are ways around. There are the, ways around that, and it doesn't just impact guard. No, obviously guard is the, like the said, biggest plague, one. But yeah, plague brisk crawlers but, are an issue. Which I mean, three of them in the winning yeah. BAO list. So I, I think tyranids have tyranids what, have guard. tyranids have the yeah hive guard have that indirect fire. Well, tau have smart missiles which can yeah. ignore cover and line of sight. So. Yeah. So it's it's that's an interesting idea, and and like I said, I I fully expect them to address shooting in the next FAQ chapter approved at some, you know, to some degree. I don't know exactly how, but it is obviously imbalanced right now. Yes. And, you know, I, yeah. I mean, because, like, uh, so for me personally right now, competitively, like, since we talked earlier, I don't have Corn Demon again, which is what I've been playing for a while. I've been kind of going through a couple different armies trying to find something I like, and I'm having trouble finding an army that, that I like just the feel of how they play because shooting is so much better right now. And I kind of like, I have a tower army. I kind of just don't, I burned out playing my tower army back in sixth edition. You mm-hmm. have Necrons too. Yeah. Well, they're here. I just take, 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 take okay. them back and, you have to and strip then strip them. them. And yeah, unless you want to go that's, with the day glow. That's a, well, I do, <laughs> but I want to go with, I do, but I want to do it. Well, um, <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> like I, sorry, Dustin. I know you're not listening, but I want to paint them well if I'm going to do that. Um, <laughs> I mean, yo, I would say Eldar are always fun, but yeah, but I also don't want to buy it. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's it's fair. like I don't know. I'm trying, you know, and I say that having like bought two completely new armies this year. But um, I hear sisters are coming out soon. <laughs> I guess I just there's I have yet to find the army, and I, this is where I'm kind of in a little bit of a rut right now. It's like I don't. 
I don't want to just play like an all out shooty, like Marine list or something. Right. That's kind of what's good right now. And it's like, uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm trying to find, I am struggling to find that same balance between assaults and shooting as well. And cause I do find assault way more satisfying and way more fun when you pull it off. And it's really hard right now. You know, it's hard to pull off. And like we said earlier, the reward for pulling it off is lacking right now. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because if you pull it off and then suddenly you kill the thing, and even if you kill the unit, now you are ass out waiting to be shot up. Or even if you don't kill the unit, they'll just move those then two or three guys survivors back. Yeah. 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 Oh, the, these three guys can't shoot? Oh, well, I still have yeah. my flamers and these hell blasters and all these guys who will shoot you. Yeah. I'm not speaking from experience or anything. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. I have the, I have the same issues in the last several games I've right. played. So. Uh, which I want to use that to springboard over to another topic, and that is as far as imbalances in the in the game currently, and that is command points. Yeah, command points are. Uh, I we we praised the change in the big FAQ that gave battalions five because it helped some of those small elite armies get a lot more command points and be able to actually stand on an on a equal footing. The problem is it gave all the armies that didn't have problems with command points even more command points. So, uh, And then with the addition of being able to just splash in a battalion, uh, a cheap-ass battalion of guard, or, you know, and there are chaos equivalents as well. I'm very torn on what to do about command points, because if, so, okay, so let's say that you lowered the battalion down, and you said, nope, we'll take the battalion back to three command points or whatever. Or we're gonna raise up the other, the, you know, the other, or uh, or, or do it kind of like things. smite, smite the battalions. First battalion is five, second battalion's down. Well, thing is, yeah. it, the problem right now is not multi battalion list necessarily. It's just that everyone can throw in a battalion mm-hmm. of guard, okay. like okay. every to five. Yeah. Well, so it's like so if you knock that down to three, you're knocked down to two. Then instead of seeing those battalions, you would just see the supreme command detachments. In every list, because like, oh well, if everything gives you one, for example, then I'm going to take a bunch of uh, cheap commanders, cheap commanders, and stuff. So it's, I think the way to do it, and I and I'm spitballing ideas here. You either do command points based off of army points. So if you're playing a two thousand point list, you get six command points. If you're playing at fifteen hundred, you get four, and something like that, where it doesn't matter how you build the list, uh-huh. or you do it where command points can only be spent on that that uh, that detachment, and I don't know that I like that option because that adds a, way, a whole other layer of bookkeeping in this. Right. But right. if you can only use the Astra Militarum command points for, on your Astra Militarum detachment, that does that does cut out a lot of the shenanigans that happen. Right. Uh, I mean, but like you said, it, then it's like okay, so you've got your five command points that you got for your guard battalion. Well, what about, and then do you have like three freebies that you can spend on yeah, anything? Because that's your battle forge. Yeah. Yeah, because otherwise I'm looking at something like, well, maybe everybody gets five and then you get one, you get zero for a patrol, zero for, you know, super heavy auxiliary, one for everything else, two for brigade. Yeah. Because the brigade, you know, or maybe three for a brigade because the brigade should be worth a ton of points. Yeah, it should be, yeah, it should be worth more. Because, I mean, because, again, the idea is you're trying to encourage Ver- specific types of, you know, building. And, and 
the idea is that GW by bumping it up to five is like, hey, we're trying to encourage people to take battalions instead of patrols. We're trying to take battalions instead of Outrider and Vanguard, et cetera. Yeah, well, except but that's it's, not how it actually But panned. it's not how it played out. That's not because because it's so easy for every it's so easy for half the armies and to get a battalion. That, and guard. that's the other problem is that it's easy for the Imperium armies to do that. Yeah. And it's harder for the Chaos armies. They have some things that can kind of get close, but it's harder. It's really hard for some of the Xenos armies. Yeah. Like there's not a way to there's not a way to do it for like Necrons. There's no way to just sit there and like, okay, I'm going to take two battalions. So you just don't have the points to do that. Or you, you know? by the time you do, you don't have enough yeah. points left to do to actually really. have an effective army. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. So it's. I almost want to. There needs to be some sort of rebalancing there with command points. The other part of this, and this is the big thing that I was really concerned about initially when they started when we went from Index to Codex 40K and we started getting all these stratagems. The stratagem balance is not there either. There are some codexes that have really poor stratagems, and there's some codexes that have amazing stratagems. And, like, it helps that, like, Astra Militarum or whatever has really good relics and really good stratagems, as well as being able to get a ton of cheap command points. Right. Whereas, you know, as an example, although Death Guard does have some good ones, Death Guard stratagems are very limited comparatively to some of these other ones so it's like well it doesn't matter if i have if i have a battalion or not right because i don't have a lot of good stratagems anyway or the dark eldar you know agents effect stratagem is way good like it's super useful and nobody else has a stratagem that's at that power level really right and even in and also it colors the list building because Every Dark Eldar list is going to have yeah. at least one detachment of uh, Cabal of the Black Heart. Yeah. They so all they are. They, and they should. They, like yeah, they should. And now you are seeing, like, the list I played against was um, uh, Cult of the Red Grief, Cabal of the Black Heart, and Cabal of the Flayed Skull, which the Flayed Skull one ended up being really nasty because they ignored cover. Which meant what little cover I could get in that last game was useless. And I mean, that was covering no cover against, like, or it's no cover against anybody that was firing from a vehicle, which meant like their blasters and venoms yeah. were ignoring any, any potential save bonus I had. It was, it was rough. Mm. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you always see a cabal of the black heart. Always, 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 because you really should. Well, the other thing that we talked about with the command points is as we've done codex reviews. When we go over warlord traits, we highlight the one that lets you reroll yep. to get points back because that's always the best one. That is always the best one because command points are so useful. Well, that's, that's always the best one, and it's not always available to everyone too. Like there are some armies that don't have that option. Like or they're not even or they're not created equal. So for example, going back to the Astra Militarum Death Guard comparison, Astra Militarum has a relic that you can take in a two hundred point detachment. That allows you a chance to get command points back anytime either player spend it. Whereas Death Guard, you to do that to get a similar ability, you have to spend the points, use an elite slot, put in a character, the Tally Man, and then when you and only you spend command points, you roll two dice, and if they come up seven, you get one of them back. Those are not even remotely balanced. No. And it's like it's like yeah, theoretically they both have ability to get command points back, but one is so much more easy and effective. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's that imbalance is a problem because that's why you see certain armies or certain detachments always in these top lists because they're really good. You're always going to see if people are taking knights, they're probably going to take Hawkshroud because that is way better than the other ones. I don't know. You no, I'm no. seeing a lot of Raven as yeah. well. Raven's also yeah. really good. Yeah. Ra- Raven, a lot of people have been pushing Raven lately. Um, but, and, and that's also one of the things like it doesn't necessarily matter what, like, for the, for, for most cases, like the sub factions, the chapters, yeah. the houses, the craft worlds, whatever they happen to be, there will be that one, like with Cabal the Black Heart, there'll be the one, or two that have like these are the stratagem you want to like so for example tau like i was playing a borkon list and so experimental experimental weaponry which we talked about a couple episodes yeah. ago you know it's good it, it is good and i i liked it but afterwards like people were asking me so which craft or which sept you playing I'm like playing borkon they're like really you're not playing tau and the reason is because of that focused fire stratagem which is super yeah. good and it's also the fact that tau's um tau's sept trait is you overwatch on fives and sixes. So uh, that's, yeah, that that's a problem when you have some stratagems and some sept traits that are just obviously superior, and you mix that in with the fact that some armies have obviously superior ways to regenerate stratagems. And, yeah, like the guard one, where it's like, it's a free relic, which I'm already wondering if, you know, like, I like the idea, in theory, of a, fr- of a relic that you just, like, you swap in for a yeah. piece of war gear. The problem is the ones that don't require you to take a particular piece of war gear, and yeah. suddenly it's just a free buff for your army. And it's like there should it feels like there should be a cost associated with that, and there's not. Or or they should all be on the same power level of like, hey, it's maybe a little bit better, but it's not it's not an army wide buff like that is because there is never a situation where the Aquila is a bad choice to take because <laughs> right. it, and even, you know, and like, yeah, well, if you're taking full Astro Militarum, yeah, you want to use it because it helps your army. If you're taking just them to splash in a soup, still worth taking. Yeah. You know, whereas some of the other buffs and for other armies, it's like, ah, yeah, I could take this, but it only, it only impacts my custodes or whatever. So it doesn't impact this if I soup in other things. Uh, I, I think that's, that's the one that, that pops into my head the most that's just, like, obviously overpowered. I think for the most part, a lot of the other relics are pretty good yeah. because they just are slightly better versions of things. It's that one and a few others that are just well, game and, and it's the combination of that one plus the fact that it's very cheap yeah. to splash in that particular thing and that's why yeah. the 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 imperial guard command point battery is a thing and it's a yeah. problem now because you're right because if it was 500 points to take that detachment that relic becomes less useful like right. it's not but uh, that relic is at 200 points at 200 points that relic is worth taking even if you just had to pay 200 points for it <laughs> like yeah. that's the thing is you're you're paying 200 points to recycle command points oh yeah and you also get 32 bodies and mortars like you're a, it, it would be worth it if you could just pay 200 points to get that relic right. in some cases. And you're also getting all these other benefits. Uh, another option, it would require, this would require an incomplete recosting of stratagems, a complete, complete reexamination, mm-hmm. which maybe needs to be done, would be going the Age of Sigmar 2.0 route where you start with like one command point plus a command point for every 
battalion you have in those, yeah. and now in that that's basically formations. They're predetermined. Yeah. You have to have these units. Uh, so most armies are going to get one, maybe two command points at the start of the game, and then you accrue a command point every turn, and you can spend them on and all their like all their stratagems cost like their hero abilities and stuff like that mm-hmm. cost one command point to use but you don't have a big battery of them you start with one a turn or it, you you're, you yeah. d- you build them you, you start with a very up. small pair yeah you know, small pile and then you build them up but you could end up spending them all and burning through them and I almost wonder if something like that for 40k, where it's like you start with one, or maybe everybody's Battleforge, you start with three. Yeah. You start with one for every detachment you have, and maybe brigades are worth more, and maybe patrols sure. are worth little, or maybe patrols are zero, and battalions are worth two, and everything else is worth one, and then you accrue one a turn. You would have enough to do some of your pregame stuff. Yeah. If you chose, but it would cut into your pile. And then you have to kind of pick and choose as you go. And, you know, so by the end of the game, you might have used six, seven, eight command points, but you couldn't front load them. And I think that's where it gets really dangerous. But yeah, and then you would, I would almost in that case, like every, maybe... I don't know. Maybe you just get rid of the recycling abilities, or or you tie them to very particular things that you have to yeah. pay points for, like the tally man. Where it's like yeah. if I if I am using a if I am using a death guard stratagem, I can possibly get it back. But there's a very certain set of things I have to. Yeah, do. I mean, because again, like with the tally man, it's a very specific fluffy thing of like, oh yeah, no, if I roll a seven on two d six or whatever, okay, right, cool, that's that's fine. But just it automatic or. And there's still a role and stuff for the Aquila, but like being so much easier to get in certain. Well, scenarios. and the other problem with the Aquila is it's not just rolling to see, oh, you used a stratagem. I do I get a point back? Yeah. Or like uh, the again, that's another thing. The Cabal of the Black Heart has a warlord <laughs> trait yeah. that gives you the same thing. It's like, oh, well, I can roll like, oh, you spent three. Or you spent three command points on that stratagem? I'll roll three dice. So look, yeah. I got two of them back from yeah. you. Rather than just like rolling one dice and maybe getting one. Yeah. Again, they're not so all created equal, the- and some of them really benefit from it more than others. So what do you what do you think? And maybe this is a they're tied together too much, but do you think that command points are the big or the bigger problem than like say shooting being overpowered or do you think they kind of go hand in hand i i think they are i think they're related i don't know if i would say they directly go hand in hand because i think the shooting being so good is partially because assault has been you know assault is not as strong as it could have been which says something concerning where assault was at seventh edition right and again i agree with the people that say that assault has lost some of the things that it used to have and it needs those back yeah but the other thing, I think the shooting one is more the fact that terrain is non-existent. Yeah. Except as, can you can you see me? Yes, no. Um, and then the command point one, I think that is just an overall game balance issue. And th- I think that is affecting army building way more than any ITC mission design could. Because yeah. that is just becomes a good choice no matter what. No, I, I I think I'd agree with that. 
I was just kind of wondering what your thought was on it. Cause I, I do agree. I think that if I, if there's one thing that I had to address or fix coming into the next round of like FAQs chapter approved, I think it's command points. And cause I think that impacts so many other things, but it's, it's a big fix because yeah, that's when one of the pushes is to get stratagems in the hands of every army. And yeah. now suddenly you're, I mean, which is why we probably won't, you know, chapter, we'll see chapter approved, you know, in December. And I think most of the code, I think they said all the codexes save sisters, of course, yeah. will be out by the end of the year. And maybe that's the point where they're like, okay, we're, we've got to redo stratagems command points. And there's the thing like, and look, I, I'm, I'm advocating for changing it somehow, but at the same time, I'm also like, I spent $15 for every time I pick up a codex to buy those cards and, and have those and stuff. Like, it's only rendering them all want useless. I that stuff to all just be rendered useless, but I don't, I, there, maybe there's a middle ground fix that I'm not thinking of, but I, there's got to be something. Cause it, it's not, it's not balanced right now. And like, and then there's also the fact, as you mentioned, as you just kind of alluded to, there's what four armies that don't have stratagems right now. Right. That are still kind of out there in were, the cold. There were no orc players at Show Me Showdown. And that's because, and one of the reasons for that is they're waiting. Orc, Did orc, orc, we had like one. By saying we only had one, I was thinking at Midwest. Yeah. I'm like, ah. orc players in general are waiting. For their codex. They're waiting so they can have access to the number of tools that everybody else has. And one of the things, personally for me, I think there needs to be way more just generic stratagems available to everyone. I think there needs to be a counter stratagem. I think there needs to be... I I think, like... I don't know. I just... I, I think that some of those stratagems, like probably the relic stratagem and maybe like even the deep strike one or whatever, whatever, the should probably just be generic. Like, across the board, like... Since they're just about in every codex. Yeah, they're in every codex. And then they're all, They're not I, in every codex. Like, Tau doesn't have a deep strike one. The, right. the relic one, everyone has, but not but every. it's like, I, I think there should be some more of those. Just, just enough variation. Ones. Like, the Harlequin one works on Harlequin's, like, infantry and bikes. But sure. The others true. only work on infantry. And or, you could still keep the Harlequin one that's like, hey, this also works for bikes, whatever. But in general, I think there needs to be just more generic ones. And, and this is. Of course, that also leads that, to more. Command point inflation. And this is a problem, like I said, th- this is a problem where if I was like designing, if this, this is, should have been fixed back at the beginning of eighth, instead of the three generic, I probably would have came out with like six. And then there, and then I probably would have put fewer stratagems in each codex. But like I said, that, that genie's out of the body. I, you can't I really kind fix of, it. <laughs> I kind of like how uh, kill team has handled it. There are six up front. Every faction right now has three, except for like Gene Sterlicolts and Mechanicus. They have a full six. So basically, like yeah. everybody has access to six. There, eventually, every faction will have six. And then there's, if you're only playing match play, there's one per specialist type. Yeah. If you're playing campaign, there's up to three per specialist type. And then what they're showing now is that the, uh, like the various, uh, kill zones have some that are tied to the particular pieces of terrain, mm-hmm. some of which then further tie to a particular like specialist, some of which then further yet tie, like, here's the level one t- specialist terrain combo stratagem. So they can get really esoteric and specific. But yeah, having... If, if most of these factions had six stratagems and then six generic ones in 40k... It'd be a lot less problematic. They would also sell a lot less of those card packs. 
Well, the other yeah. thing what they did with these stratagems is they took a lot of rules that were on characters, something that you might not see in a game ever, but except for that one time, and they moved those to stratagems, which I know, Kevin, you're probably referring to as the mostly useless stratagems. Well, and, and, yeah, I just, there is a stratagem bloat, and... and oh, definitely is one. I, I am torn because I do like the fact that they have taken... Oh, what was the one like the the dark angels have one like if there's a space wolf thing then you get like i like that that fluffy stuff is in the game but it's in the game in a, as a form of a stratagem where if you're not playing against this army you just ignore and it, it and it doesn't ever come up but it means that there's now 40 stratagems or whatever for each army that you have to mill through while you're playing the game you either have to pick out the six that you know you're going to use. Yeah, that's what I had to do every game. You have to sit there and go through while you're playing the game and wait wait a minute. Okay, before I start my turn, let me look through this because there's one stratagem I want to use, but I can't remember if it's beginning or end of movement. Which this is is the argument for focus on an army, play it over and over again so you know those tools. Sure, sure. If you're going to play this competitively, if you're playing it casually, then you have the freedom to do that. Even if you play competitively, I I will say, with the stratagem bloat, I might know my army and all of my stratagems, but if I'm playing against an army, I don't know what theirs are and the guy's just rattling it off. I still might have to say, okay, what's that? Can I see it? Yeah. What does this do? And that's the thing. It's like the stratagems are not nearly as uniform as they should be because, like I said, some stratagems go before you place unit. Some stratagems work after you place unit. Some at the beginning of the shooting phase, the end of the shooting phase, after you declare a target, before you roll a wound, after you roll a wound. There's no real standardization there. So uh, getting to the – going kind of going back to the larger discussion we had about – um about like, you know, cheating or those types of elements. That's part of where it comes in because like the LVO thing. Well, no, you have to declare this at the end of your movement phase or, you know, you do this at the end and it's that what, you know, it's like because those stratagems, there's all these stratagems out there for every faction. You have to know yours and you have to know your opponents and you have to time them very specifically. And it, that does slow the game down. That does make it more complicated. And there could stand to be a lot more streamlining of that process. Also, I'm going to throw this out there. Once we finish codexes and we start getting to campaign books and storyline books, I have a feeling stratagem bloat will only get worse as they start I, oh yeah. introducing we're, we're like that. more stratagems because these are mission-specific or that's why faction-specific th- now that we're adding more. When yeah. we see more stratagems, we do need to address command points before all those extra stratagems yes. come out. So... Here's my okay. So here's my question that I just kind of thought of this because you meant, made a good point with the stratagems of like campaign books and stuff. Do you subdivide stratagems and say that only certain ones are available in competitive? I think you do. I mean, I think well, that I mean, is that look, maybe look, a solution. Look at, look at the core book right now. Yeah, there are stratagems that are narrative specific. Yeah. They are tied to particular narrative missions because so it's like this mission. These stratagems are available. So do you go through in chapter approved and say okay? Here are the 10 competitive stratagems available for competitive play for each faction and boom, these 10, you know, and relist them. I, is, is that an option? So that when you're in competitive play, then it's only a certain. I, you could absolutely, you could absolutely do that. You could, they could pick these stratagems are available for matched play. The rest of these yeah. stratagems are open and narrative only. Yeah. There is nothing stopping them from doing that. It would not render the deck useless. They would not necessarily have to repoint everything cost wise. Yeah. I mean that 
that might be a, that might be the also, best solution. Also, I mean, that's that's about. the thing <laughs> to also remember is that all these stratagems pre big FAQ, which means most of these books were in like that was one of the things yeah. with the like the night codexes. They said it was in development and being printed before the big FAQ came out. So other than the two codexes after that, theori- like yeah, yeah, what Death Watch and Harlequins after that, <laughs> yeah, were made with three command point as your battle mm-hmm. or as your battalion. So yeah. they were made for a different point economy technically. So maybe you know we neither need to re-examine all those older ones which is most of the books. Yeah. Or come up with a a solution to basically say yeah, these you know maybe you do say that for match play only the uncertain ones. Well, hell, for match play all the sub-faction specific ones now become open and narrative only. You yeah. want to use the Cabal of the Black Heart uh, Agents effect? Guess what? It's camp. It's narrative only. It yeah. is not available for match play. You want to use the, you know, like this, like any of this, like you want to use it. it now it hits some armies harder than others. Yeah. Like, oh, for example, uh, Alpha Legion. Forward operatives is kind of their it's thing. Their, yeah. Uh, so it again, it's a hard. You'd, you'd have to carefully examine all of them and figure out which ones can we allow, which ones can we not, and how do we have to retool them so that it's fair that the like so everybody who plays this faction has access to them. Yeah, because again, or, you still want most most factions to be viable in competitive play. Although I I do agree with what we've said before that. It's okay to have some factions or sub factions that are geared more towards narrative play, mm. um, but yeah, I, I do wonder if that maybe is a, is is ultimately a solution for some of the command bloat. Is that you just say the some of these are only available competitive or for match play, and some aren't, and kind of rebalance it for that. But that's that's a that's a big change. And again, like as we mentioned earlier, anytime you make a big change like that to any of these systems, they're unf- it it you could accru- it, yeah, it's a butterfly it can, effect. Yeah. It can set off other changes. So, other than command points, what what are some of the other what are some of the other like concerns that we currently have? Um, I mean, there's always the shifting meta. Uh, yeah. You know, knights are the new hotness right now, and they they have become the new gatekeeper army. You yeah. have to be able to deal with knights, which unfortunately, it's you know we we always had the issue before of the thing that can kill a vehicle can kill a space marine. Yeah. But the thing that can kill a vehicle can't necessarily kill 30 orcs. Yeah. And so if you focus too heavily on dealing with the big vehicles, you may end up hamstringing yourself against the the horde. So it will be interesting to see because this will even out. People will. Yeah. It, it's like, you know, knights right now are maybe not quite to the position that flyers were when they like first hit sixth edition. But it's kind of the, we need to figure, you know, knights are an easy add-on army or they're an easy full army and they're very effective. And because they're still, you know, the balance isn't quite there as much as it could be. But again, people will figure out how to work around it, how to play through it. And that will make that army a gatekeeper army. You have to be able to beat knights to advance, but not you're not guaranteed to fight knights. Okay. And, uh, two things on that one. First, I have the perfect weapon for you. What's that? It's called a haywire cannon. 
It's good against hordes, and it does mortal wounds against vehicles. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but second, the thing I've noticed with, with the knights especially is, well, I hate saying back in the day, but back in the day, when we were only getting a few codexes a year, meta got stale, and then a new codex would come out, shake it up, then that was the new meta for a bit. And it, it almost feels like as the codexes have slowed down, and we, because we haven't had, we had nights, and now it just feels like we're in a drought. I mean, it's only been what, two months, if that. Yeah. Right. But, but I mean, <laughs> it feels like a drought now because we were so it used really to like does. getting two a month. Yeah. We, we um, suddenly had like a month of Age of Sigmar and Kill Team. Yeah. Breathe. Uh, but yeah, breathe. But it, it just feels like nights have come out and with as fast as everything had been going, it feels like this is the meta and we have to wait till the next codex comes out for it to really yeah. shake up again. Well, so it's kind of interesting to me and this kind of ties into some of the last few things we've talked about. Knights, I don't know that Knights will ever be like a viable competitive army by itself simply because they lack the mobility and just the bodies. Well, they can, no. no, they don't, no, they don't lack mobility armagers. at all. Well, I mean, well, okay, the armagers do help that, but I meant like if you put like five Knights on the table, oh, no. you're, yeah. you're not able to keep up with jet bikes or things like that, that you someone can, can put three or four units of jet bikes out there and kind of move around well, and, 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 and that's hopefully what, jump between terrain. Well, and that's something where mission design, that's where the mission design yeah. on controlling objectives becomes important. Sure. So, but what I think is interesting is that you're, you're seeing a lot of people that are going to that right now because, hey, uh, we had gone through a, a, a thing before where vehicles in this edition are in an interesting spot. You don't see vehicles unless they're tanks and you're not seeing a ton of tanks. So a lot of people weren't taking, weren't taking anti-vehicle stuff. So you're taking plasma, you're taking flamers, you're taking heavy bolters. Now you've introduced another faction that's boom, all vehicles. Now people are having to adjust to like, well, maybe I don't take that heavy bolter. Maybe I take the multi-melta. Maybe I take, you know, the melty gun instead of the plasma gun. And you start going to see kind of that balance shift a little bit, which is fine. And I think eventually, as you mentioned, people will figure out how to do that and people will stop, will not play full night lists. The next phase of this that I think you're going to see, and this will be ultimately where the knights have the impact, the knight gallant is probably the best unit in that book because it is a, it's one of the few units we talked about that is a viable assault unit. Right. And I think you're going to start seeing one night gallant splashed into an army for their mail for the melee capability to just run it up the field and get in and just because it'll survive overwatch it'll survive well hmm. look you know tanking that, that's fire what happened stuff. to me when i played the night list a night gallant ran up to me and assaulted yep. me turn one and yeah. that night gallant you know you see a night gallant backed up by a couple of helverin armagers so you've got shoot they've got the shooting yep. to soften up or take out targets that the gallant won't get to this turn and yeah, the gallant just runs forward. There's very little you can overwatch at a gallant that's going to have a chance to do anything against it. And the gallant's the cheapest variant too of the right. Of the so it's very knights, so. and it's you know the, the and it'll charge in, and the reaper chainsword will get work done, or titanic feet will get work done. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you can still mount a carapace weapon on it if you want ex- if you want shooting. So, so you've I, got op- you've got plenty of options. I, I think that's ultimately where the the as you mentioned the gatekeeping aspect of the night list I think is going to be a big thing is that it's going to force people to bring anti vehicle weapons again 
which isn't a bad thing because I'm tired of seeing multiple units of hell blasters on every Imperium list. Um, yeah, uh, but it's just going to force people to bring different weaponry, which is which is good. And I think you're going to wind up seeing the gallant splashed in a lot of places because, I mean, we mentioned before the Smash Captain from Blood Angels, the price of a uh, Smash Captain and like you know the uh, and like the two or three captains take a gallant instead. You're going to lose a command point, but you're going to get a better assault unit. Right. And it's about the same points. So it's like, <laughs> I think that's, I think long-term that's where, you know, in a year, if we're still talking about Knights Codex, I think it's going to be about the context of putting gallons and stuff in splashed in kind of like the Asher Militarum battery or whatever. It's, you know, do this for command points, do this for your assault, and then do this for flavor to taste for your shooting. Yeah. So yeah, it's, that's, that's what's going to shake up, you know, that, that's what has set the theme right now and people will adjust to it just in time for an Orcs Codex to come out, which will probably encourage Horde play, most likely. I mean, you imagine Green Tide is going to be a very, you know, will be oh, a viable so. build out of that, which that's another army that can, that is a viable assault army because you are going to be hard pressed in Overwatch to kill 30 Orcs. And, charging 30 orcs is going to be very dangerous because that's a lot of overwatch shots coming back at you. Yeah. And if mob rules, unless the orc players only play 19 to make sure they don't give up those recon points, which which that's, (laughs) you know, that's the other issue as well is like, do you, or maybe you take three units of 30 so you can never, you, you don't give up more than, you know, three. So, Again, it's that that you know. There's all these inner weird interconnected issues when you get to like the competitive scene and yeah. how how this will affect that and how if you pull too hard on this string, it changes everything else. So yeah, it's all in all, it's it's in an interesting spot. I don't wouldn't say it's in a bad spot, but I will say, especially because of the ma- the the very fast rate of Codex release and. You know, like how quickly the meta is shifting and how many events, because it seems like there's a lot more events, like large events than there have been in the past. So these things are getting pushed through more and more and more players (laughs) that much faster, which (laughs) is good for the game. But I think we are starting to see where, like, I mean, we are starting to see them early on and GW has worked on patching them as they can. But we're, we're at a point now where they've applied a lot of patches uh, in army building and uh, like what's considered scoring, what's not flyers, like flyers being on the table counting or not stuff like that. And I think we're starting to, what I was going to say is we're starting to see where the cracks in eighth edition are showing, Yep. which then makes me wonder, are we going to see in a year or two or three, um, a, like just like we have age of Sigmar 2.0 now. Yeah. Are we going to see an 8.5 or a 9th edition? Or is chapter approved technically like an... Are we in an 8.5 with chapter approved in the big FAQs? Or is it 8.5 for matched play only? That's the other thing. Is yeah. A lot of these changes really only apply to match play. For those people playing campaign, you know, campaign play, narrative play, open play, a lot of this doesn't apply. That's true. That, and that, yeah. they're their own beast. So. Yeah, and 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 again, they're all equally viable ways to play. It's just we talk about the competitive aspect of it because that's where, you know, if you you go on your your friendly local game store's Facebook page and ask for a game. That's most likely what people are going to play because then they know it's very easy to set those stakes and 
and that's what most people play you know when when you're doing pickup games and stuff like that unless unless you're specifically saying hey i want to play a you know unbound friendly uh, you, you know but it, you're not always going to get games under that circumstance right yeah i don't know i just i kind of hope we don't get that like i don't want to see ninth edition next year because sixth edition lasted like what barely a year and a half last, yeah years, you know but at the same time yeah i i I guess I would be more okay with it, even though it's functionally the same. I'd be more okay if it's like, hey, we're doing a major core rules rewrite and chapter approved, and it's functionally ninth edition, but we're not going to call it that. <laughs> well, and that's that's one of the other interesting things is you look at the core rules. Now, like Sigmar had a few changes to the core rules mm-hmm. that I think are important changes, but mostly it's the same game. Yeah. But if you look at a lot of the issues that we're bringing up, these are matched play only sure, issues. They sure. only, I mean, they they don't the core mechanics of the game as they are. I think are pretty solid. I think the core I mean, mechanics are fine. It's the the trouble issues are either codexes, which are on top of the core rules and can be easily fixed by fixing individual codexes, or chapter approved apply or big FAQs applying matched play limitations. Which I think it's good that we have that. And I think it does also establish the fact that, let's be honest, matched play and, com- and narrative play, match play and open play are different beasts. They use the same rule set, but otherwise they don't have a lot of, they don't re- uh, yeah. resemble each other that much. I think the only area where I maybe disagree with that is just some of the stuff about assault. Oh yeah, no. Like I think some of the assault, pro- I think assault, the assault imbalance is something that does stretch across all types of play. But it is really the only one because a lot of the other ones, strategy, you know, in narrative play, the stratagems and the command point issues don't come up nearly as much. You know, so yeah, it's these are mostly match play issues. Well, and I again, some of those assault issues, not all, but some yeah, of them some. could be could be addressed through updating the terrain rules which are also not part of the core rule they are add-ons in the main or you know they're an add-on in the main book but they aren't part of the core rules if you download the core rules or take a core rule yeah they're not included which makes a which also kind of puts that you know leans in on that whole yeah the only thing that matters is line of sight blocking because that that applies no matter what so not to end this on a down note, um, <laughs> what are th- what are some of the things about Eighth Edition that we're liking right now? I mean, I know me personally, I love the fact that we're seeing a huge amount of variety of armies. Now, as we mentioned, Space Wolves, Orcs don't come up a lot because they Even don't have Gene codexes. Stealer Gene Stealer Stealer Cults will come up a lot right now because they don't have codexes. Right. But of the armies that have their codexes, I'm seeing a lot of different armies, and there's a lot of creative builds that can be done in this edition. Oh yeah, no, I I really appreciate. I'm with you there. I really do like, and we've note we commented on this for Midwest Conquest. We've commented on this episode for what we saw at Show Me Showdown, yep. or you know, the stuff. There, there being a lot of knights. Well, and again, <laughs> there are a lot of knights because that's especially in a competitive scene where right. things are moving. Like especially when you've got all these codex releases, yeah. knights are the new hotness that suddenly everyone has to deal with. Just like when Eighth Edition first hit, Storm Raven spam was the thing that you had to deal with because yeah. it was suddenly like, whoa, this is super good. We're going to drop it in. Uh, will Will knights require a a fix to not allowing flyers to count 
Probably, or you know, or something on that level. Probably not. Knights but, no longer count for any objectives. Well, but <laughs> even, but even in among knights, it's like yeah. there are enough different knight build. Like, do you see some? Like, do you go armager heavy? Do you go uh, questor heavy? Do you splash in a dominus? Do yeah. you uh, kind of do it mixed? If you're going questor, do you run a couple of gallants, or do you focus more on? wardens and and uh crusaders because you you want shooting and maybe you have one gallant or do you do gallants backed up by a castellan stuff like that there's a lot there even within that there's a lot of flexibility and ways and, and different ways mm-hmm. to go at the same problem so the armies that are out there and especially the ones that have been done better uh have a have a toolbox generally with lots of tools that can be assembled in different ways to solve different problems. I think there's a couple of armies such as me- like Mechanicus and Necrons that don't have as many tools as they probably yeah. could. Um, what's interesting I find is that one of the smallest armies, Custodes, still has a ton of tools for dealing oh, with different absolutely. things. And that's even before you start <clears throat> spilling over into like the Forge World specific like dreadnoughts and such. Yeah. They're an amazingly flexible army, and you can have two equally viable custodes builds that look, other than the fact that they're all fielding variants of the same general model, that look and play completely differently. I mean, Dennis, you talked about how you generally played uh, custodes far more defensively than mm-hmm. the list you played at Show Me. Yeah, I and I used a stratagem in that tournament that I'd never really paid much attention to of dropping a deep strike unit right next to a Vexilla, which can then be within three inches of a enemy, which means you can get off an easy charge. Yep. And that helped me hurt a knight badly. Yeah. So yeah, it's the, again, lots there. Yeah. Lots of variety. So I am liking, I am liking that. I like the different, chapter set craft world etc traits in in general in mm-hmm. theory i think some of them need work i think some are way are obviously way better than others but as a concept for shaping the way you play an army i think that's a really neat tool I, yeah and if you get away from soup slash stew armies i really do like the the army construction method because it encourages you to look at it's one of the reasons why we have this variety is it encourages you to not just look at things as battalion but also like battalion plus spearhead battalion plus vanguard and then what units do you take to fill those out how does that work with your general army plan if you're thinking a little bit more narratively even if you're building a match playlist how do you like do you how do you justify that like do you put an hq with that that makes sense for them do you splash different chapter traits do you keep it all together under one thing yeah there's lots of tools and lots of variants and i really do dig that yeah no i I do agree with the army but aside from the command point issue i really like the army (laughs) no then yeah yeah, the command command point issue is is a a big caveat but i do like the fact that without having to go into like super complicated like moving things around within force work slots or this because like before, for example, if you take a space marine captain on a bike, then bikes become troops and the inside into this. If you want to take an all bike army, here's how you do it. You take this, you take an outrider, boom, there you go. If you want to play, uh, 
you want to play Deathwing, you take Deathwing Terminator Captain, you throw in units of Terminators, and there you go. It's a viable list. You don't have to worry about, well, I want to play Deathwing, but I have to take two units of Green Marines to play that. <laughs> or, you know, and granted, there's benefits to including that and balancing your list, but thematically, you can also go, no, I'm just going to play Terminators, and here's here's the list. Uh, and, and I think that is that helps a lot with the theme and, and just the variety of these armies. Well, I mean, like you, Dennis, you were going wanted to see, can I play a three Wraith Knight list? And the answer is no if you don't bring your models, but <laughs> but you but you could you were able to make a legal functional I, list. Right, because I complained about that when knights came out a long time ago. It's like, oh well there's a knight formation. Why can't my Wraith Knights have a formation? Yeah. And well and now, now you can. Did, I, I can. I I mean I've used it once in Index forty K and it did okay. But I, I definitely wanted to try it out again some time no but i'd say variety has been the the biggest thing yeah. um i still am enjoying assault even though i know it's not great in this edition um it's still fun to do yeah i i, I need to find ways to consistently do it and i think custodes are probably the best way for me to probably consistently custodes do it. are good slanesh is good harlequins are good um Gennari is good. I need to get back to my world leaders and try that again, probably, because it's been a while since I've played them. But it's, yeah, it, I don't know. I Assaults are always fun, because it's yeah. it, it's it an is. interesting puzzle box, because it's like, okay, yeah, you have to do, like, eight things right to get it to work, but when it works, it works. It's really, like, satisfying when that works. But I'd say the other thing I'm enjoying is, I, I, most all the time, I'm just having fun games. That's Yeah, I... I do think that overall the games are more enjoyable than they were in in yeah. seventh. I do think I think the rule set is, um, you know, it's been streamlined in such a way that it's actually. I do feel like they got rid of a lot of the cruft and a lot of the things that I didn't enjoy. Oh, it's coming back in stratagem form. It, it well, it is, <laughs> but uh, I mean, there are occasionally things that I I do find I miss. Like little every now and again, uh, you know, I'll find that oh well, I kind of miss having, like, I kind of miss having vehicle facings. I you know, it's like every unit being able to fire three hundred sixty degrees sometimes makes certain things feel way overpowered or like flyers. Yeah, but at mm. the same time, I don't. I some like is that worth the trade off of all the stuff we had to deal with? Where it's like, okay, well, I want to shoot this facing, and that facing is completely behind a wall, so I can only hit another facing, but I'm technically not facing that facing, so yeah. I get a bonus to hit, or like you get a bonus to, to your armor value, or what if I'm right on the line between two armor facings, which side do I hit? And uh, I I do not miss that at all. So what I, what I do kind of miss is the weapon facing. Like, okay... I have to be able to point this weapon at this thing to be able to shoot. Like, it's weird that I can shoot, even though I do like it, because, you know, like the Godhammer Land Raiders, it's weird that I can shoot both LAS cannons at something that's off on the you side. You have this image of the thing pulling, yeah, like, like it's, it's, like... So I do kind donuts. of miss that. What I absolutely do not miss is the whole completely different subsystem for vehicles. Yeah. I like that, nope, vehicles are this toughness, you shoot it, it's this. Like, I hated always hated the fact that vehicles played completely differently. So that having a unified stat line makes the makes that just so much easier. Agreed. 
totally agreed. Um, that yeah, there for everything I find, I I occasionally like think of like, oh, this was kind of neat in past editions. The trade offs that I get I get in return are um are totally worth it. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think, I think there's the between the variety and just the fun of the games. I, I'm really happy with the edition as a whole. I just think it in match play specifically, it seems to strain at a few points. But 40k was always going to be like that. I think trying to imagine 40k as a pure competitive game that uh, is, you know tries to manage this many factions successfully and it is it was always going to be a challenge well it's interesting because i think with the match play rules that's what they're trying to get to and this is i don't want to say like it's the, the you know unnecessary like oh we had to go through these pain points to get there i think it probably could have been done cleaner but it does kind of feel like this is the first steps towards making the game a little more streamlined for competitive play and I think it's definitely exposed some of the issues, but these issues ex- have existed for a while, right? Um, and if they if they can address them and continue to streamline and simplify it, then I think ultimately it could become a you know a a war machine style like sleek competitive game. If you well, and that, and I was and, just thinking about that. I think one of the one of the issues, and and we're we're gonna have to wrap up this yeah, discussion. Yeah, we will be yeah. talking for hours. <laughs> is that War Machine feels like a competitive game that has a narrative aspect kind of bolted onto it. Right. Like even with like they have themed forces now and stuff, but mm-hmm. you know, that's that theme is bolted onto this competitive engine that runs the game. 40K is the reverse of that. It is a narrative casual game that has had a competitive match play system yeah. bolted on top of it. And it shows. Yeah. But if they can if they can basically make it act like you know, an aftermarket supercharger rather than, you know, a, a quick, dirty patch. <laughs> it, then it's, it is actually, you know, it, it can definitely be its own thing. And I think the community is also, is, has been one of the parts of by, you know, basically, let's be honest, even though, you know, we had beta testers for 40K for, you know, supposedly going into eighth edition. We've all been basically beta testing this edition this whole yeah. time, as evidenced by the fact that they we we get yearly pat you know we get two major patches or two minor patches and one major patch a year with uh, you know the FAQs yeah. and you know if you think about it as you know it's a software product in in constant development, which basically 40k is the biggest non computer MMO ever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, that's what it comes down to. And you can play that MMO PvP, or you can go PvE and play competitive or play casual narrative stuff. Well, I think kind of wrapping this up, getting back to one of the points we talked about earlier, I can't see a way that this hobby becomes a good, balanced, like really sleek competitive game without Games Workshop being involved more on the competitive end. Like, I don't think you can get that from having a third party be in charge of organizing the events and and running the competitive scene. I think the only way you get that is if the company itself is the one, the final arbiter and kind of laying down the law and being involved in it. Because that's 
That's why Magic, that's why War Machine are good competitive games, because the company tightly controls how competitive is played. And I don't know that GW will ever or even wants to get involved to that level, but if the game is going to be that competitive type of game, they're going to have to be more involved than they are right now. Or we have to make the decision that maybe this game, it will, you know, people will play it competitively because every, you know, if two people can figure out a a way to play a game, a third person will try to figure out how to judge it, and a fourth person will try to figure out how to make money on it. Sure, <laughs> sure. But maybe we maybe we always accept that this is at heart a beer and pretzels game that we occasionally play competitively. We try to do the best we can, but yeah. it doesn't. I I think if we try to turn this into basically you know an esport of some sort. That I mean that that's that's the modern example. Yeah. yeah, is you know if we try to turn this into an esport that isn't you know with with the streaming and everything, it's practically an esport at this point. <sighs> One last point, just to kind of <laughs> separate, kind of but related. There's been a lot of talk about like Watsy trying wanting to turn Dungeons and Dragons into a competitive e style sport. Oh dear God! No. And I'm like, I think that is such a fucking terrible idea. That is, well, that is because. <laughs> 40, Not everything has to be competitive. Well, it can just and, and and the core difference there is like 40k is you know it's two armies competing on yeah, a battlefield. It is at least a competitive game. Dungeons and Dragons is a collaborative storytelling. Yeah, effort. no, I, I read those it's, articles and I'm like, oh, that's a terrible idea. No. <laughs> I, I will say this from watching streams of esports and other things. Um, I like I watched some of the Bay Area mm-hmm. Open, and the thing I missed on that was commentators yeah and i mean when warhammer tv had their well there's really aren't competitive but their little match games they put on they have two guys playing but they have also people commentating about the game and other things lvo and i don't know if well i I, well i guess they didn't for barrier opening the same people i know for lvo they did have commentators okay um because that was part of the issue when when the stuff went down on the stream is that they were like wait what's going on and they they talked about it that's kind of part of it I agree that yeah, if it's going to become an east, you know, an esport, and we're going to stream it, you have to have someone kind of explaining what's going well, on. One, explaining what's going on, and two, it kind of adds something to the game because yeah. they could all toss out lore bits, they could toss out strategy bits. But that's a, and, that's a tough thing though. Like that's a you know. Oh yeah, you you have to know the game inside and out, well, and know the our players' armies that you're. And, yeah. And beyond that, it's like it's great for us. Like after the event, we, podcasters, we get around, we we armchair quarterback the <laughs> oh, whole thing, yeah. armchair general it. But as a tournament organizer, if you, okay, so now you've got to have somebody who runs your streaming for you, and you have to bring in a, a <laughs> yeah. couple of people to <laughs> on staff to be your your streaming color commentators. Oh <laughs> no! <laughs> and I and I watch hey. a lot of sports. I've watched a lot of sporting events that have bad commentators and bad commentators oh, yeah. are so much worse than no commentators. Co- commentators <laughs> can make or break an event. I will agree. Although I I would love to find out who is going to be the Jim Ross of uh, competitive 40k. No. By God King, that no. Castlin just went up and rolled double sixes on its plasma generator. I kind of feel like that'd be Matt Root. I kind of <laughs> feel like that'd be Matt Root. I, I just I, I don't know why I just kind of feel like that would be Matt. Oh man. <laughs> Oh my! Well, we do already have a tournament called the Slobberknockers. Right. So there. <laughs> and on that note, we'll we'll, right, we'll call yeah. it we'll call it good for the night and move on to a quick bit of hobby progress. 
Um, uh, as since my last episode, I did finish up my army for uh, Show Me Showdown, including use of weathering powders and airbrushing glow effects and stuff like that. And I almost won Best Painted. Like, I was in a four-way tie for second. Yeah. It's, it came out really well. It looked uh, thank really, you. Looked really I, I got a lot of compliments on it, and uh, both here and like in person, and even on Instagram, I got you know a lot of compliments. This month is primarily a building month for me. I have a backlog of models that I want to get built so I can start moving on with it. Uh, like right now, like the last couple of days, I've been working on my daughters of Cain because I just want to get those knocked out. Mm. But uh, I have a new task to build. Yes, you do. <laughs> yes, because since Kevin is in town, he delivered something to me to build and paint for him. And this is going to be my lar- largest build and paint yet, because I have a town art to assemble yeah. with all the, the, back all we- the fun bits, all the big weapon <laughs> options. So, and the fun part is my payment for doing this is, is that I get to buy, I, I'm picking up a town art form when I go to Gen Con in, Two days. Yeah. Like, so uh, tomorrow. And the reason this <laughs> is all, this is all very, f- yes, very, <laughs> yeah. So the reason this is all very important is because at the end of the month, I'm going to be going to Siege World uh, and taking part in their unlimited point apocalypse game, which by the way, uh, Siege World is in uh, the St. Louis area. Mm-hmm. It is August 25th and 26th. And they are, G- they have a GT there as well. They still have spots of open. So, uh, if you are going to be on the, like, the Mississippi Valley in, uh, Illinois, uh, St. Louis, Iowa, Memphis, anywhere within, yeah. like, about a four to eight, you know, four to eight hour range around that, uh, con- consider checking out Siege World. They are, like I said, they have a GT. I think they have room for up to 80 players oh, nice. and they're, I think they're at 40 something right now. Now, granted, they still have a month. And as we know, a lot of your signups happen in that last mm-hmm. month. But uh, sign up before those uh, seats fill up. But I'm going to not be playing in the GT. I'm going to be playing in the APOC. And the opportunity to have one, possibly two, town are to bring to an APOC game is something I'm really looking forward to. So I'm going to bust my ass to get this thing I'm really done. looking forward to having one built and painted. So, <laughs> and not having to actually do it myself. Yeah, see, <laughs> that's worth a, another town art. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, so... Because so, it'll, it'll set unassembled for another year or longer if, I, yeah. if, if, if you weren't going to do it. So, so. so that that is... That will probably be my project for, for August. So, uh, <laughs> but I have the first town are here to clean and assemble and yeah. start working on while you are away at Gen Con. So, yeah, I mean, Gen Con's the big thing for me. I've been getting ready for that. Um, and then obviously getting ready to drop probably a Carl at Forge World. <laughs> I mean, cause the town are by itself is almost a Carl. Yeah. Uh, and then I'm going to pick up Alfarius and maybe some of the custode stuff. Like they've got a couple of custodes characters that I may pick up. The dreadnoughts kind of cool. Yeah, I already have yeah. the dreadnoughts. They have the new, uh, <laughs> they have the new named character that the Constantine Valdor with like the awesome, like, uh, guardian spear with like, that's like the curved blade and stuff that I'm probably going to pick up. So. Yeah, I'm gonna end up spending more money. I'm gonna spend money to have un- to have models that I will need to assemble and paint <laughs> later that go in the pile of unpainted and unassembled models. So that almost sounds like a island from a Christmas. It kind of does. The land of unassembled yeah. models, the yeah. land of unassembled <laughs> also known as Kevin's closet. Okay. Yeah, that's all I've been doing. I haven't done anything else though. Okay, I guess for me, I did get the rest of the the wraith seer, not wraith seer, the bone singers and the spirit seers painted. Just in time to not use them. Just in time to not use them. But now they're done. They're done. 
Um, and then after that, I've been planning on what to do for the Slush Army for Iron Halo. Finally got a list I kind of liked. So I only have to buy one model, which is on its way to be shipped now for a second Demon Prince. And then Rob's going to let me borrow a couple um, steeds, so Seekers of Slanesh. So past that, I just have a lot of painting and re-putting arms on and... Getting things cleaned up and ready. Fortunately, you've got a couple of months for that. I do have a couple of months. Yeah. And it might probably take me a couple of months. But yeah, I will not be going to Siege World. So we're, we're splitting shifts there because I am still planning that weekend of August 25th and 26th to head down to the Dallas area. Right. Because that's when the Citadel opens. Correct. And I want to be there for that. So we'll have Eric. somebody at the Citadel. We'll have somebody at Siege World. Who knows where the hell you're going to be? Arizona. Yeah. <laughs> Sucks Whether I'm be. playing 40k or not, I don't. <laughs> By then, it should be under 120 degrees every day. So, well, I hear they've got iced tea. <sighs> <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> it's time to wrap up. It is. We are just after midnight, closing in on four hours. I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah this. Uh, yeah. I was worried this is going to be a short episode. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> four. You don't have anywhere to be in the next like, I know, 24 but I was just, hours. I was or... a little bit worried that we were like going to run out of topics no, and that no. this wasn't going to if that this wasn't a, going to if we've got a set topic yeah. sometimes well, we're so lazy yeah. and focused. Uh, we didn't have a set I've been topic. We did show long enough I should know that, yeah. but still I was yeah. And also we're not dead tired because we actually like didn't banter as long before we started recording. That's true. Yeah. Because yeah, normally we're like when we're at midnight, we've been already talking for an hour, so. Yeah, that's true. All right, so from all of us here at Preferred Enemies, this has been 100, episode 178. I'm Rob. Kevin. Dennis. Good night, good gaming, and I think the game's in a good space right now. Preferred Enemies is an Undergopher Radio production and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Our theme music is Metal Slug 2 Super Vehicle 001-2, No Need to Reload, originally by Takushi Hayamuda and remixed by Roataka, courtesy of OC Remix. It can be found at ocremix.com.